You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Double with 1996 Daylight and 2008's The Dark Knight. I probably should have said that in a gravelly voice, but we'll see how I go when we actually start talking about it. And here with me, um, he's a great guy. He's a regular on likes of the Film Feast and your local Pizza Hut bar. It's Mark Warner. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Lindsay. Thanks for having me back. Great callback, by the way. Yeah, that's the one thing I really remember about that last episode. It was just like Pizza Hut bar. I'm like, that is... That is delightful and weird at the same time. <laughs> oh, good. Those are the things that I aim for to be remembered for. Just the <laughs> uh, the random things that I say out of nowhere. That it, it, it really should be. And it's what you are known for. Um, hey, <laughs> hey, how's it going, by the way? Uh, I'm doing great. I just um, I'm still kind of shocked that this is the double we're doing, um, just given it's the genesis of this idea. But I'm you mean, thrilled. I, it I like started it. as a joke. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, it all started with a joke. If not for copyright uh, purposes, you should drop like a chunk of that Taylor Swift song at the beginning of this episode just to make it even funnier. I, I really, really should. <laughs> <laughs> for no. those of you who aren't aware, the <laughs> uh, Taylor Swift song Daylight features the lyrics, been sleeping so long in a 20-year dark night, and then I see daylight. I only see daylight. And I thought, huh, Taylor Swift inspired double feature, The Dark Knight and Daylight. Uh, and yeah. I, yeah, I've recommended did. a handful of doubles to Lindsay. And this is the one she comes back like, hey, let's do that one. <laughs> and you did offer me the chance to do another one once I said that. But I was like, oh, hell no. We're doing the Swift double. Absolutely. Uh, that is what it's going to be. The, the title of the episode is going to be called. It is going to be called The Swift Double. Oh my Fingers God. Fingers crossed. Is, I think you just got your masterpiece. Yeah, I think it did. Um, <laughs> right. We might as well just dig into it because there's a lot to dig in with this, um, with this double feature. Surprisingly, wrote more notes for The Dark Knight than I was expecting. Um, right. So, Mark, what would your first trailer be? All right. Get ready for this. Because I'm going to start off a little odd, but okay, I love it. The thing, the thing about the Dark Knight is that it kind of just dominated the box office when it came out. Mm. It's kind of a miracle that any movies that were released around that are remembered at all, mm -hmm. much less have a sequel. So I thought uh, when showing the Dark Knight, we could pay tribute to one of these movies that came out around the time and is still thriving today. It just had a sequel a couple years ago, and uh, Mamma Mia. 
I'm of course talking about Mamma Mia. We're here for the wedding. You are expecting us. Oh my God, yeah, <laughs> yes. Mamma Mia, here I go again. My, my, how can I resist ya? Mamma Mia, does it show again? My, my, just how much I missed ya. Yes, I'm broken hearted. Is your father here? Can you tell me? Oh, Jesus Christ, you mad man, I love it. Um. <laughs> That came out around the same time as Dark Knight. That is amazing. Same day. Yeah. July oh. 18th, 2008. It opened alongside The Dark Knight, and we're still talking about it today. It got a sequel. So oh, movies I... that were released like in the weeks before and after kind of got defeated, yet this movie released right alongside it somehow still survives. And that is incredible because, um, yeah, because I have a vivid memory of going, yeah, I don't need to see it straight away, do I? And then just the propulsion power of The Dark Knight, I just ended up going to go see it on a random Tuesday after afternoon when I had a spare three hours. Um, but I love that trailer. I still have not seen the Mamma Mia movies. Um, I need to. Oh, God. Um, I just wa I, j I finally watched the first one last month because uh, – it came out when I was in high school, and I thought I was too cool for that shit. Like, I'm not going to go watch some movie where they sing ABBA songs, but now I'm uh, 31 years old. I love ABBA, and I'm more open-minded uh, on what I watch, and I just gave it a shot, and I loved it. I still need to see uh, Here We Go Again, which everyone says is better, and I will. I yeah. will. That is what I hear as well, but no, you're much more progressed than I am because I was 25, 26 when it came out and I was too cool to go see um, a friggin' ABBA movie. Um, <laughs> and it's only now that I'm reaching my kind of late 30s, early 40s that I'm like, no, wait, I like ABBA. That is fine. Um, so yeah, I need to get organized and actually see those movies, but the whole idea of uh, Pierce Brosnan singing is <laughs> always kind of oh, done what I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that because i'd always heard that pierce brosnan singing was one of the worst things about this movie hmm. and he's not good but <laughs> no. when he sings uh what's that song sos oh yeah there's like this deep well of emotion that he's like pulling from and it's just a guy screaming from the bottom of his soul to be noticed and loved that I don't care how bad the actual singing is, the emotion of his performance in that song is one of my favorite things in that movie. Okay, I am definitely now definitely watching this movie now. You and have said that also, it. Uh, this was, uh, sorry, this double was inspired by a pop song. So, you know, it, why not have a little pop inspired movie in there? You know what? Yes, I think I think that is absolutely right. Uh, speaking of Pierce Brosnan, uh, my first trailer, um, I just, you know what, the thing I've kind of noticed about sort of going through Nolan's filmography is that he keeps trying to make a Bond movie. Um, so I'm going GoldenEye from 1995. The man who knows him best. Hello, James. What an unpleasant surprise. 006. What's the message? No pithy comeback? He was your friend. And now he's your enemy and you will kill him. Is the satellite in range? Target is London. Now, the entire world is about to be caught in the crossfire.
Oh, yes. Yes. Um, Pierce Brosnan makes his debut as Bond. It's actually, I always forget the titles. I do like the one where um, it's Jonathan Price as the mad newspaper man on a boat. That's probably my favorite Pierce one, but I never can remember its name. That but, is Tomorrow Never Dies. Yes. And that is that was my first ever Bond movie. Oh, I saw was it in it? theaters. And uh, so that's one of my favorites just because of that. Carver's wife. Was it something I said? How about the words, I'll be right back? I'm from the New China News Agency. Looking for a news story? You could have taken care of him. Let the mayhem begin. Yeah, I think and that, Jonathan yeah. Price plays mm. newspaper magnate Elliot Carver. That's right. I got that movie <laughs> tattooed on my brain. Oh, I'm gonna have to get you in for a freaking Tomorrow Never Dies double. Um, oh, please. <laughs> um, but GoldenEye is probably the more solidly made out of all of, even though Tomorrow Never Dies is Michelle Yeoh insaneness. Um, I oh, love it. God. Amazing. Um, amazing. Um, GoldenEye is probably this more solid of the ones, and it kind of, I don't know, I was sort of watching it, and that came into my head as sort of the, as of all the Bond movies I could have chosen. But um, no, Nolan, I think Barbara Broccoli should probably just give Nolan a crack at Bond one day. Um, I think because he's literally, most of them, he's making a Bond movie, um, or trying to at least. So um, yeah, that's my first trailer. To my knowledge, I think much like Spielberg, Nolan did originally want to make a Bond movie. And then also like Spielberg, now that he's got all the power that he has, he's kind of moved beyond it because he can do whatever he wants. But I would have loved a Nolan Bond movie. That would be incredible. I think me too. Um, because when I, Tenet is literally a Bond movie, but with time travel. And I think you're right. Um, he's moved beyond yes. being able to um, for just Bond and he can just do whatever he wants. And so when he goes, oh, I want to make a movie. Oh, let's just do James Bond, but with time travel. And <laughs> I mean, Kenneth Branagh is such a great Bond villain. I mean, he is just going for, for the, he's going for the um, rafters with his, with his Russian accent. Um, mm. Which by the way, uh, Kenneth Branagh, Russian accents, kind of my favorite Branagh. Um, and so you yeah. must be a big Jack Ryan shadow recruit. Fan, oh, then. oh, I am. I mean, that movie can be dull. <laughs> and then he comes on with his Russian accent. I'm like going, I'm back in. <laughs> it's spectacular. It really, really is. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I think you're right. I think he's moved beyond that and he can just do so much with that kind of, um, James Bond kind of structure, but it's in quite a few of his movies. Um, so Mark, what would your second trailer be for the dark Knight? Uh, so my second trailer is going to be more along the lines of the movie itself. I got my weird trailer out of the way with Mamma Mia. Uh, a couple of ways I wanted to go with this, but you know what? I want to prepare people for a dark and gritty superhero movie. So I am going to show them the trailer for the highly underrated IMO and hopefully IYO. I, sorry, I, I'm, I'm kind of out of it. I hope I said that right. Anyway, yeah. uh, I'm showing the trailer for Jonathan Hensley's The Punisher, starring Thomas Jane and John Travolta. Supposed to be dead. Get up. Wheel the money out. Out the window. You know whose money this is? You know whose building this is? Howard Saints. You're not gonna believe this. We're really sorry about your family. What do you think he does? Maybe he's an artist. Get everyone in. 
We're going hunting. This is not vengeance. No, not vengeance. It's punishment. Nice. I still need to see this one. But um, actually, I'm very behind on my Punisher movies. But just knowing the trailers and the footage I've seen, perfect, perfect, perfect trailer. Very dark, very gritty. Um, yeah, absolutely perfect. Yeah, that's. Uh, it's not oppressive. Or, um, or sorry, The Dark Knight is not oppressively dark like the nolan movies are often accused of kind of being like oppressively dark when mm. like you watch a movie like the punisher that is an oppressively dark movie that is a mean movie that's a movie where nerdy little ben foster has his piercings yanked out by a mean old will Patton. it is a grim movie again just on that scene i want to watch this movie um <laughs> Um, no, you're right. I think watching Dark Knight again, I was to get into the first half is actually kind of, well, I don't know if it's funny, but it's definitely trying to be funny. There's a few moments where I'm like, going, is Christopher Nolan actually making a joke? Um, <laughs> Nolan likes the Nolan likes those individual moments of comedy. I think he, uh, he never got, a, he definitely lessened them from Batman Begins in which it at times just feels like a Marvel movie. They're fewer and far bet further between in the other two, but they're still there. Oh, oh yeah, I watched all three because I was just going to watch The Dark Knight and then my partner informed for me, you do not just watch The Dark Knight, you watch the trilogy. So I ended up watching the whole entire... Um... I tried I tried to follow in your footsteps. <laughs> I only, I didn't have time to squeeze in uh, Rises today, but oh, I wanted to. They are long movies. <laughs> yes, they are. But yeah, I think you're right. I think Nolan does get accused of being really grim. I don't think he is that grim because I think he has too many other influences that aren't necessarily grim that kind of flow it in and out of his um, work like James Bond or what trailer I'm going to be talking about next. So, um, and I think he's that kind of um, guy that goes, haha, funny, pauses and waits you to kind of, I, I just made a funny in a very serious voice kind of guy. Um, and that's kind of what I appreciated on, on this watch of the Dark Knight, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I imagine him telling jokes like someone on NPR. It's very dry and <laughs> yes. you don't, uh, you can't really tell that you're hearing a joke until you, uh, like there's a, there's like a beat and you're like, oh, that was supposed to be a joke. Yes. But when you see it in the movie, it's like clearly funny or oh. it's clearly intended to be funny. But yes. Yeah, it's very contradictory when you know the man himself. Yes, which I think is what I've always kind of gone for when I've watched his movies. I mean, this very serious British man and then um then you when you actually just watch his movies without thinking about him that absolutely comes across um perfect trailer uh, my second trailer I'm gonna go for a director who I think as I said weaves in and out of his work constantly um which is Michael Mann um but I'm going for Thief from 1981 what the hell do you think that I do I wear $800 suits I wear a gold watch I'm a thief you want to put down contract scores all over the country? Working directly for me? I am self-employed. I'll make you a millionaire in four months. So what do you say, Frank? They gotta be big scores, they gotta be fast. One, two, tops. You don't know from one day to the next whether you're going to be killed, go home, or get busted. Look, I have run out of time. So I'm just asking you to be with me. Excellent that, choice. Yep, just that clean style, especially the opening of um, the opening of the Dark Knight, which is feels like pure man, pure um, heat. Um, but Thief, Thief is probably one of my favorites of his. 
Um, it's just so clean and it's got, is it Robert Prosky? Um, just being an amazing villain. Um, it's well, Robert Prosky is a right bastard in that movie. Oh, he's amazing. Um, it's yeah, just really clean. Um, James Belushi's best role. I kind of wish he kind of did things like he, a uh, thief then whatever else he did, but yeah, it's just a really, all I keep saying about it is a clean movie because that's kind of what man does. He makes these very kind of, um, uh, very sweeping kind, but they're very clean and they're very put together, exactly like how a jigsaw piece um, puzzle is meant to be put together, which Nolan, of course, does the exact same thing. Exactly. No, Thief is a very, like, especially Thief. Like, Thief is, I think it's only, like, 90 minutes long. It might be two hours, but it is lean oh, and lean, yeah. and nothing in the movie feels extraneous. Everything that's there needs to be there. There's no fat on it. No, absolutely no fat whatsoever. Uh, speaking of that, now we will be getting into a movie that does actually have quite a bit of fat on it. Um, <laughs> this is not going to be the gush fest that I think people are expecting, or usually when people talk about The Dark Knight. It is known as the mm. premier Batman movie, even though... Well, 50% um, of it will be that gush fest. 50% of that gush fest, and then we get to the last half, which I'm... Or last quarter, which I will get into. Um, but yeah, but definitely 50% definite gush fest. Um, and with that, we're going to be getting into Christopher Nolan's, of course, The Dark Knight. Here's my card. Bruce, this is Harvey Dent. Rachel's told me everything about you. I certainly hope not. You once told me that we'd be together. Did you mean it? Bruce, don't make me your only hope for a normal life. You're Alfred, right? That's right, sir. Any psychotic ex-boyfriends I should be aware of? Oh, you have no idea. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're tonight's entertainment. Well, hello, beautiful. You look nervous. I've seen now what I have to become to stop men like him. The night is darkest just before the dawn. And I promise you, the dawn is coming. And here we go. Now, we've already sort of talked about how we first saw this movie. It was 2008. This was the biggest thing in the world. Um, I, you kind of... If, people are sort of starting to realize that Iron Man also came out that year. But when you were in 2008, all you could talk about was Heath Ledger's um, performances, The Joker and The Dark Knight. And now I feel like people are coming back and going, oh shit, cinema changed that year. Uh, yeah, for the better, for the worse, you decide, listeners. No, that that is absolutely true. Yeah, you don't, I don't know if it's changed for the better, I don't know if it's changed for the worse, but this is a year that um, absolutely changed. You can tell, because it's this movie and Iron Man. Um, I mean, they're both kind of the template uh, for blockbusters all the way through the 2010s. Like, The Dark Knight, like so many movies tried to impersonate that. And then Iron Man, well, Iron Man had about a million sequels that all kind of tried to impersonate it. Yeah, it really did. Because um, I watched the original Iron Man recently, and it's kind of how strange familiar but yet how different it is from the rest of the mcu movies and i think because they looked at sort of what dark knight was doing and they went okay we'll just put color in it and make it more fun or well, dark knight's really fun but we'll make it more poppy and um let dc do its own thing and dc i mean i know people are reappraising um certain snyder movies um but 
again, when you go back to those sort of late, early 2010s, uh, Batman v Superman was not considered a great movie. Um, I mean, they had to get the Snyder Cut back to the Justice League. I mean, everyone was going, does it have, I mean, I, I haven't seen Man of Steel for a long time. Uh, well, since I think it came out in 2013, but it was like, oh, they tried to Batman Superman. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but that was also what people forget is back when that came out. I mean, there could have been talks behind the scenes, but really all we knew about it was that it was just a reinvention of Superman uh, produced by Nolan. It wasn't uh we didn't know that this is going to lead into the DC's version of the MCU. We just thought we were getting this dark and gritty Superman movie that was being shepherded by Nolan. Like mm. it's uh like people forget that was produced by him. They have the sin copy logo on there. I remember watching uh, Man of Steel at midnight and my friends that uh, my uh, friend I was with and I actually applauded the sin copy logo because we're fucking nerds <laughs> and uh but yeah it was just this uh this kind of reboot of Superman it wasn't uh, the basis for a mega franchise uh which it ended up becoming uh, no and one that's kind of gotten um kind of revealed which all, all movies have been always revalued always get reappraised within sort of 10 uh, over 10 years this one sort of is like five years later and people are like going oh i actually like those director's cuts or oh i see what he was actually next i was trying to do he wasn't going off the back of the batman movies it's something else because now we have distance from this trilogy um i know you didn't get to watch rises um but do you necessarily have a ranking of the three batman movies uh yes i do so um my favorite is uh like everyone the dark knight mm. and honestly the other two kind of flip-flop on us right now i prefer rises to begins but there are other times when i prefer begins to rises like the thing you guys should know about me i'm just gonna say this so you can take my opinion with a grain of salt but i am a nolan bro i guess that's what they're called online well i guess nowadays it's mostly snyder bros but it used to be nolan bros like obnoxious mm. nolan fans and i used to be a very obnoxious nolan fan like i shudder at like how i acted when the dark knight rises came out but anyway <laughs> getting off topic the point is he is like he's in my he's basically one of my three favorite filmmakers like mm. my favorites are kind of tied between tarantino the colons jesus christ cohen's and nolan mm. and uh so his filmography is essentially a five-star filmography for me i think insomnia is the only one i wouldn't give five and i'd still give that a four and a half and following is the only one i haven't seen i intended to watch that before we recorded this so i could like have a full comprehensive nolan knowledge i bought i bought the uh criterion during this last criterion so i didn't have time to get around to it anyway my point being all three of these batman movies are five stars for me and they're like three of my all-time favorite movies um no i think nolan's just one of those really fascinating directors for me i don't know if he's one of my favorites but there's always something i'm kind of latch onto. like especially i'm a person who likes dunkirk a lot more than a lot of other people dunkirk i mean again i just said i give his whole filmography five so this is not news i don't know why i'm chiming in with this but yeah i think dunkirk's amazing it is and um it's not so much the because I actually recommended it to my dad going, oh my God, it's like David Lean. And David Lean is one of his favorite, dad, my dad's favorite directors. He came back confused because he didn't kind of understand the timeline. And just because I watch, go to the, usually go to the movies every week, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. He was doing a puzzle thing again. But just the way he almost made, um, it's kind of this mixture of this epically sounded movie. Man, the sound design is incredible because it's all, 
you know, what would like to be on that beach, just these crashing noises, these unvery unnatural sounds. And then, but it's almost a silent movie because there's barely any dialogue in it. And I think to kind of, kind of create this experience of that is absolutely incredible. Um, and then my dad's go back and didn't like it. I'm like, oh, it's because Hardy had a friggin' mask on it, isn't it? Um, <laughs> even my partner was just like, Can't, why does he wear a mask? I'm like, because he's Bane, okay? He's, uh, yeah, um, I'm a person. Of course. Yeah, yes, of course. Um, it's, um, it would be painful. Um, it's. <laughs> Oh, I, I really love friggin' I just was giggling every single time he spoke. I I, I loved Bane and when I, when I was watching it last uh, last night. Um, okay. kind of... it's a very entertaining performance, but like it's still it's a chi- like it's still a chilling performance. Oh, that absolutely plane. works for me. Yeah, in the plane because I don't think I'd seen it since it came out. Um, and I remember oh that's right I remember feeling really nervous in the in the opening shot in the plane because I'm like going oh god who the hell is this guy and he's telling like no stay behind they expect a body um which i'm going to sean connery because i swear that he's doing a sean connery impression the whole entire movie which is now why i was giggling every single time um he's spoken it um it's i'm the kind of the i'm person who really loves batman begins i think it's kind of my favorite out of the trilogy because it feels more fantastic more like a comic book and more like the animated series i think there are lines that are so corny that come out of batman begins i'm like oh this is like the batman animated series um uh liam neeson as raza ghoul has a line excuse me i have a city to i have to i have a city to destroy and it's like that i love it that comes out of this that comes straight out of the animated series and i think and we'll get into it and just the way that nolan and Brother Nolan and I think Goya, you have a way of translating um, exposition, which goes through all the first two movies, not so much Rises, is adorable because you just have random characters just kind of explaining things as something passes them, um, especially on the train. <laughs> when the train's going full bore and you have that guy in the in the booth going, ah, if it goes past this thing, it crashes into that, <laughs> we're in trouble. I um, love it. Yeah, that that's what I was saying about uh, Batman Begins. That one feels the most like a Marvel movie because it feels the most kind of heightened. It feels the most absurd and cartoonish. Yes. I feel like that's the one where, because it was his first big budget blockbuster, the studio kind of had to hold his hand and they were probably a little more demanding. Yes. And it feels more like a studio movie. It, it was does. shot on sets and there's a lot more questionable comic relief. And then once that one was a success, uh, they kind of just let him go off and do his own thing with the other two. No, exactly. It's like with Tim Burton. Uh, Batman Returns is a movie you only get to make if you make the 89 Batman. And The Dark Knight is the movie you get to make after you make Batman Begins. Um, And Rises you get to make if you're Christopher Nolan. Um, Watching the three, I realized how much more Nolan the movies get. And then when you get to Rises, it's peak Nolan. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, no one's telling him what to do. <laughs> the, thi- the thing about Rises, which again, I just want to say, I one of my favorite movies. So if it sounds like I'm making fun of it, well, I am, because there are a lot of things you can make fun of oh, in that movie. But I still yeah. think it's like a near... I want to say it's a near perfect movie for me and just it's that's everything that I go to the movies to see mm-hmm. but yes no that's one where Nolan has this fine line in his movies between like you know telling an exciting crowd-pleasing story 
and kind of diving into the philosophy and psychology of his characters. Yes. And that's one where I think there's a section of the movie that dives fully into philosophy and psychology. Oh. And it's like, mm. and that's of course the section where Bruce Wayne is in a pit and literally has to climb out of this darkness in or into the light in order to save the day. Yes. It's literally it like it's it's a complete metaphor. I still love it, but it's definitely the thing that kind of bothers me the most about this franchise. No, because one thing I sort of noticed about Dark Knight and then watching Rises is that he's, um, it feels like he's really excited about the set pieces. And the set pieces in both movies, as we'll get into the Dark Knight, are extraordinary. Some of the, um, there's one, there's a couple of action sequences in Dark Knight that are some of the best of the last 20 years. Maybe some of the best action you're going to see in a movie ever. Um, and then he'll have these kind of moments of, you're right, these little philosophies that kind of feel like little placeholders of like, oh, I'm just going to tell you the psychology of the very famous line in Dark Knight, you uh, either die a hero or live long enough to um, see yourself as the villain, um, which is kind of the thesis for the whole entire movie. Um, and it's, so you've got these little placeholders that, yeah, and it's kind of this kind of up and down of, oh, this amazing action sequence. Oh, yep, philosophy. Oh, action sequence. Oh, the little philosophy. And that is much more broader in Rises because you can tell that the um, studio isn't coming back to him and goes, oh, can we have some more action here? Can we have a little bit more paste? He's like, oh, no, Bruce Wayne is going to be in a pit after having a broken back for a good half hour of the movie. And it's going to be him learning how to go back into the light after he'd spent his time in the darkness because... In Rises, you get that amazing speech from Bane going, oh, you just think you live in the darkness. I was born in the darkness. Oh um, God, it's so good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's blended a little bit more because he can. I think in Dark Knight, I think he's still getting there because I know there were uh, things of people looking at the dailies of the Joker or people execs coming down to see what Heath Ledger was doing and just going, what the hell? Can, we, can he stop licking his lips? This is creepy and not understanding what... Um, then they sort of seeing some of the footage cut together and then they realized, oh, this is amazing. But apparently it wasn't quite translating on set. Even Nolan was just like going, uh, Heath, uh, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that kind of ties into like the fan outrage, quote unquote, oh. when Heath Ledger was cast, which I, I mean, I... Thankfully, I was like, I was very immature in some ways back then, but I was also very mature in that I was just like, it's it's a fucking actor cast in a movie. Let's just yeah. wait and see how he does. Christopher Nolan's obviously a very smart director. He made a great movie with Batman Begins. He's got a couple of great movies under his belt already. Mm -hmm. I think the guy knows what he's doing. Let's just wait and see. And then it goes on to become the most iconic performance of the uh, century so oh, far. Exactly. It's like, oh, please, we've we've had the Joker. Okay, it's Nicholson. You're not going to beat it. And even I was a bit, really? You're going to go for the Joker? Interesting. Because Jack Nicholson, if I recall, did a... Now I'm... Well, I yeah, it's the Joker. Um, and you're right. The turn... I've never seen a turn happen so quickly on... Out, outrage to um to oh my god this is the greatest thing ever it happened so so quickly and exactly. it was a lot of those then, same fans yeah yeah and then jared leto played the joker and then oh my god i'm just kidding he was terrible <laughs> oh 
yeah, Jared Leto, Jesus Christ. Um, no, the only other one that was um, Ben Affleck playing Batman, but then when he was Batman, everyone just went, oh yeah, he's pretty good. Yeah, oh yeah, that. I would already, I, I, I mean, I'm also, God damn, I'm just like <laughs> unloading this baggage on here. I'm also kind of a Snyder bro. I don't like, I'm like, I'm not to the extent that I am a Nolan. Like, I don't mm. think, I don't think Snyder's made a single five-star movie for me yet, but I love all of his movies, even Sucker Punch. Oh, and uh, hmm. my uh, so oh, get, sorry, I'm, I'm getting tongue tied. Ben Affleck as Batman and Bruce Wayne, particularly in Batman v Superman, mm. is my favorite screen Batman. It's not my favorite Batman movie, but it's my favorite Batman performance. No, I was going through sort of um, our my Blu-rays, especially with my sort of partners, and then I realized I live with a Snyder and a Nolan bro. Just so I'm like, oh shit, I didn't realize I owned this many Nolans or Snyders interesting dan he's like no those are mine i'm like should have guessed that yes and yeah he loves um it, yeah his favorite interpretation of um of batman is the snyder cut for justice league and batman v superman um is and yeah i think there's just a certain thing and i think there is an extreme kind of snyder bro or nolan bro that is very annoying but then there's just the rest of their fans and they're fine because they just like movies and they just like both directors are very more way more visually um inclined um directors which if you're making this kind of very fast-paced very uh, moving movie then those are kind of the directors you kind of want and i'm kind of getting on board with snyder a bit more than i was even two years ago yes <laughs> oh uh yeah happy to hear that i want him to have as many fans as possible because mm. yes it's uh directors like him and nolan like I, I don't have anything against the MCU. I think they're very entertaining movies. I even love a couple of them, but mm. they definitely, they don't feel like they're made by filmmakers. They definitely feel like they're made by committee. Yes. And the action scene, I mean, the action scenes especially usually feel like they're just giant CG-a-thons shot on green screen. And like Avengers Endgame, probably my favorite Marvel movie. Mm. Great movie, but I look at that, that CG already looks dated it does black, a little yeah black widow has cg that looks even worse in my opinion at least than iron man which came out over 12 was made 12 years before black widow it's really weird i can only think of about three directors that i think got away with making their own movie and kind of marvel stepped back a little bit um and only on specific movies i would say james gunn um the russo brothers especially with um the first two halves of captain america i think the last quarter they gave him fire stepped in and went okay we need a big spaceship crash um absolutely um and i think um in uh, uh ryan coogler for black panther um except for some of those fight scenes i mean you can kind of tell but yeah they kind of only let their directors kind of be individualistic on certain points um yeah i would their, say yeah. i would i would jump in and add i do think some of those directors in the first phase like, yeah when they were kind of setting it up the directors had a little more power because they were oh, hiring yeah, more experienced yeah. directors like hmm. uh john favreau joe johnston especially oh, like yes. uh, J uh the first avenger is probably the most distinct out of any marvel movie hmm. But yeah, but then, yeah, and maybe even Kenneth Branagh for Thor, not a movie I love, but you cannot get, a, get going back to the Branagh, but you can't get more of an experienced director than Branagh. I mean, he the man knows how to at least put a movie together. Exactly. Um, so I just want to get back to the point I was making quickly because mm. I uh, I feel like I get lost in the tangent. So I just want to go back. 
the point being when I brought up the MCOs trying to say like they don't really feel like they're made by filmmakers and there are a lot of times when they do look a lot cheaper and I can tell I'm just watching something that was mm. shot on green screen but with people like Nolan well first off Nolan the thing is he's all practical and he does as little CG as possible yes and then Snyder even though his movies are CG-a-thons like he knows how to shoot everything so that the cg looks as immaculate as possible and he still makes it look cinematic and i yes. feel like that's kind of missing in blockbuster films these days outside of a handful of filmmakers and that's no, part of why i respond to them so strongly yeah and these guys are making um multi hundred million dollar movies and they are getting their very distinct and very specific voice across which you do not see in movies over a hundred million dollars or 200 million or however billion dollars how much endgame was cost um so yeah you, no matter if you're going to see a snyder movie or you're going to go see a um nolan movie you know that you're going to get a very specific type of movie and i think dark knight is when i think people realize this i mean yes he made the prestige batman begins um memento but it was when dark knight hit and people went holy shit, this is a movie. This isn't a comic book movie. They keep calling it a movie, not a comic book movie, which I think is fascinating because Dark Knight is very much still a comic book movie. I mean, you still have the Joker feels real. I'm like, does he? But okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll jump in there because I was yeah. actually talking with a couple of friends about this earlier today. I yeah. would say that the Joker does feel real. Mm -hmm. I feel like the main villains in all of his movies do feel more real, but then you have all these ridiculously cartoonish side characters like Eric Roberts as Salvatore Maroni <laughs> or uh, Richie Coster as the Chechen shouting, my dogs are hungry! Greatest line reading of all time, by the way. <laughs> yes. And you have these people coexisting in the same universe. You've also got like Nolan extras, which- Oh, oh God, we bless about the extras. Nolan. <laughs> Yeah, we talked about the extras in uh, Cohen films and yes. Raimi uh, yes. last time I was on. Nolan is like a different class of memorable extras in that they're all so, even when they try to be good, they're so over the top. Like, obviously, the people on the ferry are the ones that stand out. Oh like my the, God. <laughs> the guy who wants to blow up the prisoner ship, he's just like, well, who are you to decide? We, we should have a say. We're, we're not talking about that. Well, why aren't we talking about it? <laughs> yes. Then, yeah, just all these side characters that are so cartoony and feel like they're out of a comic book or feel like they're out of just a wackier movie. But I feel like that's part of what is so great about the Nolan films is that they do, I don't want to say they feel realistic, but they feel grounded in a certain reality while also feeling grounded in cinema, in classic movies and they feel like they're made by like they feel like they're made at the crossroads of like michael mann and oh. michael bay i guess no, I and i can say that because christopher nolan is an admitted fan of michael bay and jonathan gives him shit for it <laughs> of course he does um <laughs> no it's it's weird i think you're right because i think you can with nolan you can see these kind of classic movie elements i'm even talking about david lean i mean i always see this kind of very um David Leanish kind of camera camera angles, epic kind of scope, um, and then yeah, you get Michael Mann, and then you also get Bay um, because yes, I will make fun of Bay until the cows come home. But that man, when he's not using sixty thousand uh, dollar, sixty five million dollar shots or the amount of shots, he knows how to put a 
action sequence together. I mean, you look at The Rock, you look at even Armageddon, which I'm not... Anyway, Armageddon's a completely different conversation. Um, <laughs> I could go on for another three hours about that movie. Um, um, oh. make people, um, it's He knows how to... Yeah, he knows how to put a movie... He knows how to create this amazing action sequence. Um, but then he just has to bay it up. And Nolan will always Nolan it up. So I guess th those two comparisons are actually really, really... Um, they're correct they're clever yeah absolutely and that's why um i for i honestly forget what i was even talking about that led into that tangent but yeah it's just nolan has a um oh yeah we we're talking about the more kind of comic booky yes. feel of these movies mm. and they do while they're still always uh whether it's like the go-to talking point is they're grounded in reality mm. uh they're still they still have a lot of over-the-top elements to oh, them. My... and I love them just as much as the realistic elements especially Batman Begins but we're talking about the Dark Knight so we can focus on that one yes um no for me the Dark Knight feels over the top with this kind of very grounded setting um I think the Joker does have um out of some of the other main characters um especially Aaron Eckhart I'm looking at you um very kind of grounded performance because he's kind of um and oh no we're gonna disagree on aaron eckhart i love oh, him and then this is no okay early. my thing with dark knight i oh, might as well get into this straight away i love the first 90 minutes maybe two hours um i think there is again the one with the, the flipping of the truck the bank heist at the beginning some of the first times you see the joker when he's killing that poor man on the on the video is heartbreaking oh my um, god that is horrifying that's horrifying that's when you're like oh he stopped being funny he's now just kidding around and just doing magic tricks with eyes going through uh pencils going through eyes but that's when you realize oh this guy is not funny um but the point i think after the hospital after all this kind of big stuff i think i get exhausted because so much has happened um we're spoiling uh, Dark Knight, by the way. So if you haven't seen it, I'm surprised. Um, if you haven't seen The Dark Knight by now, you're never going to watch The Dark Knight. You're so. never going to watch The Dark Knight. So what I'm about to say, um, after uh, Rachel Dawes has been killed, um, Joker's kind of gone, oh, and I'm doing something again. I'm you know, making you choose between this one guy who figured out who Bruce Wayne is, and I've never loved that pl plot line, um, to you need to, I'm going to blow up a hospital. Um, after when, which is an adorable moment when the last thing doesn't work, um, and he's having that conversation with, um, Two-Face, which I do love. After that point, I think I'm so tired that time we get to the ferry, I'm a little bit like, oh, I'm tired. I'm just tired. And I get the structure of the movie because this is the Joker. This is what he does, but it feels like a one more, oh, I need you guys to make a moral decision. Do you choose the convicts or do you choose the regular people? Um, who's worse? Um, kind of like, oh, someone's got a bomb. The you either um, kill him to save twenty people, or you let all twenty people die because you can't kill one person. It feels like that maybe repeated one too many times. Um, but again, I think it's just because there's so much happening in this movie, and it's so big, and it's so kind of thing. Time, I guess, get to that. I'm a little bit tired, and then when I really get Aaron Eckhart going for gold and really making choices, I'm a little bit tapped out. But that is just me. Everything else, um, but I think it's just because there's just so much happening that I, even in Rises, I was just time, Bruce Wayne's got the friggin' thing going, taking the bomb out. I'm exhausted. I am just tired. Well, I won't blame you for Rises because that's kind of a divisive movie. But yeah. 
I do have to ask, like, have you always felt this way about the Dark Knight or has it kind of been a lot more recent? Because I, I would imagine like after a decade of kind of bait and switch movies, like because mm. obviously the Dark Knight has the Joker getting caught, but then that's part of his plan. And, yes. he escaped. and that was the template for so many movies in the 2000 in the 2010s avengers uh skyfall hmm. fucking fast and furious oh my Six. god they all have this bait and switch where turns out the bad guy wanted to be cut yes. because that was all part of the plan yeah. that might be it because i know the first time i watched it i really loved eckhart's performance i was even more on eckhart than i was on ledger just because ledger had been so hyped up Oh, yeah. Eck- well, it. Eckhart comes out of nowhere. Like, yeah. I remember hearing, like, we were maybe going to be teased with Two-Face appearing in the next movie. Mm. And then the movie comes out, and no, he's just a villain in this movie. And so you're, you you go in expecting to see the Joker. You don't go in expecting to see Two-Face. Yes. And so you are kind of, you're surprised by that performance, and you're just won over by it. You see, I still think Aaron Eckhart is incredible in this movie. And it maybe killed his career i've meant to go back and look at his uh filmography since this but the only good thing i can remember him being in was in the past 10 years was uh sully yeah it's kind of he's kind of had this weird career because he had sort of was on that actor on the rise like he thank you for smoking um a few i can't remember the other ones top of my head it's like oh yeah and then i remember going in thinking this is going to be i mean this is the role that killed heath ledger i don't think it was i think it was i don't think he was so immersed in the joke of that he took too many he died um that's not what jack nicholson thinks no uh, oh, there's a oh god there's jack a video nicholson is, jack nicholson is not a method actor so. there's a video of uh jack nicholson being told the news about heath ledger and all he get all he simply says is i warned him and it's like jesus christ jack jack okay okay um he, Yes, this was the role that killed Heath Ledger, and it was the most brilliant performance anyone had ever seen. If he did not win that posthumous Oscar, there would have been Batman fans rioting in the streets. Um, it was just this kind of, it's kind of, I don't think there's been a performance that has kind of um, electrified people that I can think of since Heath Ledger's Joker. So I kind of went in with this kind of my arms folded going, okay, Heath, show me what you got um is this a role that really did this and then i walked out going you know what aaron hickart was really good um but then as you said i've watched all these movies where the bait and switch like they were meant to get caught all this other kind of thing and now i'm just kind of watching going yep yep of course he is yep the joke is very organized by the way and it's <laughs> for someone who loves chaos knows logistics um it's um like i wonder i wonder how if Joker would have been able to pull anything off without the help of the uh, mob. Yes. Because that's what I was thinking today. mm. Like, he doesn't, nothing takes off for him until the mob actually starts helping him. And I wonder, like, would he have been able to orchestrate all this chaos without their resources? Or would he have just been uh, just a mad dog on a leash i think you're right because i think you get that sense in the first one when he's able to get five guys to shoot each other in the bank scene um but that's when the mob really starts coming together i think he's and the patients from Arkham asylum that's when i think he really starts getting the resources and able is constantly to do that bait, bait and switch throughout yeah, the... by the way oh sorry i feel like yeah. i keep cutting oh, I'm, no. I'm bad at cutting people off on. i podcast. do the same thing don't worry <laughs> I was just going to say a uh, shout out to Michael Jai White as Gamble, another great uh, cartoonish over the top yes. gangster performance. 
Fun fact about our double today, both of them feature actors who would go on to star in Dragged Across Concrete, which uh, <laughs> not a lot, uh, it's a divisive movie, but it was one of my favorite movies the year it came out. So I, I, was still, I still need really to see happy. that, yeah. I will, I will watch I mean, it, yeah. Maybe you don't, I don't know. I don't wanna be the one to recommend Dragged Across Concrete to someone, they might hate me for the rest of my life. No, people I respect um, love that movie, and they are not. Great. If you watch it yeah. uh, and don't like it, blame it on one of them. Yes. <laughs> um, no, and oh, just as a side note, most of my notes are just character actors that pop up, like with an exp explanation point. It's like, yeah, that's Eric a, Roberts, that's a great thing we can talk about. Because Nolan, this oh. is how I know he loves cinema. He loves using B-movie actors or kind of has-been actors. He does the Tarantino thing where he brings back someone like uh, Eric Roberts in this, um, uh, Rutger Hauer in Batman Begins. Uh, Modine and Rises. Fucking <laughs> Modine, yes. Uh, he's got uh, William Devane in Rises and Interstellar. Like he just yes. loves Tom Berenger in Inception. Like he, this is a guy who's like grown up on movies and loves movies and doesn't just go for like, I don't know, the hot new actors or the just like, famous people to play mm. their roles he will go for someone that he watched in movies growing up and absolutely fell in love with and that's what i love about him no me too because when you're watching um the dark uh, there's the perfect moment of like eric roberts is in this yay and my first reaction back in the day was like eric roberts is in this movie huh and now i'm just like yes bring me those side characters the tom berenches the michael j whites um the um, sure Chin Hans, it's, yeah, I love it. Oh God, Chin Han, yeah. <laughs> He's I mean, this amazing. Movie, <laughs> this movie made Chin Han like just one of the go-to Chinese actors for movies in general. Yeah, um, I wish, it, yeah, I'd love to see him actually do more, but he is the go-to if you need a sidekick or a um, typical kind of, he's been a bit typecast because of it, I think, but. He's usually he's... like a Chinese billionaire or kind of a Chinese government official. The roles that are popping into my head immediately are yeah. Contagion and Skyscraper. Exactly. Um, weirdly, Ghost in the Shell, when he was playing one of the mercenaries, which. Oh was... my God, yes. <laughs> um, it's. Yes, Chris, I just mentioned Ghost of the Shell. Um, sorry, I said to. I recently, appeared, I recently <laughs> appeared on an episode of uh, Inside the Sequel that will most definitely be out by the time this comes out. Excellent. And I, I applauded Chris for that move. Because <laughs> I love that Ghost of the Shell remake. And uh, yeah, that, that's another good one that Shin Han was in. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. Um, but no, the cast and the side cast, we keep going back to these kind of how we use extras. They're always big. They're always noticeable. I mean, most people want their side characters or their extras or their kind of small day players to be in the background, not Nolan. He wants you to look, point at the screen like Leonardo DiCaprio and go, that's Eric Roberts. He's in a friggin' <laughs> Nolan movie. Um, he wants yeah, you He to... wants Nikki Cat to play <laughs> the driver of a SWAT van who just gets random lines of dialogue. There's like an entire subplot <laughs> yes. in that chase scene going on in the cab of that SWAT van. Yes. Just, just shouting random lines like, I didn't sign up for this. What is that? Is that a bazooka? Is that a bazooka? That's kind of what I, I love know. about the exposition. Like it's some random guy in a car or in a booth just like telling you what's happening. And it's like, is that a bazooka? It's... Uh, by the way, uh, Nolan knows how to do an underground chase friggin' scene. In each three of those movies, there's one, and they are friggin' on point. Oh, um, God. Love them. 
And yeah, so he likes people to notice those little things. And so when you're watching it, it's always like a, oh shit, it's that guy. Oh, it's that moment. Oh, that guy is giving a big performance that I don't think is anyone's ever asked him, like the guy who in, in the ferry has ever asked him to give him that kind of performance before. And <laughs> I think it kind of maybe goes back to maybe his either his sense of humor or the fact that he loves movies. He wants every moment to stand out in a very specific way. It's not just going to be, um, yes, he's amazing at his set pieces and that's what I respond to. Um, and these kind of weird little moments of philosophy, but he also wants these moments of kind of weird quirks to stand out. And that's Eric Roberts in a nutshell. And this movie has about six different subplots going on. It's actually insane how much is going on in this movie. Oh yeah. And another thing to bring up with these extras is Nolan doesn't use second unit directors. No. He directs everything <laughs> himself. And that probably partially explains why everything feels so specific because mm. he's, he is uh constructing this entire movie himself he doesn't have a second unit guy for these kind of smaller scenes that don't really require the director's authority no he's still there because he wants to control everything uh yes um is it is it um uh john like uh peter hyams who was his own cinematographer um i want to say um paul thomas anderson did that a few times as well like he just wanted to shoot everything um and that's like nolan he's gonna he is a control freak um, he doesn't like people sitting down. Everyone's going to be working all the time and he's going to be um, controlling um, ev everything on that set. And so you do get these very specific moments that are very Nolan that are, aren't in places that you expect it. I just wish I wasn't so tired time we got to the fairy because the fairy scenes are all that stuff. It's kind of like um, it is all the, you know, the guard shooting point, people yelling at each other. Tiny Lister walking up. Um, Tiny Lister walking up. It's, uh, I do love that moment when he just takes it, breaks it, sits back down. And the guy just can't turn the key. It's, it's kind of it's that. It's incredible that there is a climactic sequence in a Batman movie that doesn't involve Batman in any way. That whole sequence is a contingent entirely upon the citizens of Gotham yes. and uh, prisoners and how they react. Batman cannot save them he has no power over this so it's really incredible it's kind of a bold move to uh put something like that into a batman movie it, it and actually especially, is and have yeah. it work well obviously we kind of disagree on this but have it work as well as it does like i think that scene is incredible and there's a moment like after uh I think it's after the Batman and Joker confrontation, the uh, score has reached this high pitch. The violin is screeching and it cuts back to the, uh, well, why aren't we talking about it guy? And he's about to hit the detonator mm. and he just can't bring himself to. And you see him trying to, mm. and then the music kind of calms down as he gives it back. And just like, oh my God, that is fucking incredible filmmaking like you can hear how excited i am just by how oh. loud i'm talking about oh, no, it I, I really love it because i kind of wish i had that enthusiasm for the boat scene i just um it feels like i'm in a second movie um that i'm not as enjoying as the first as as i'm enjoying in the first movie and it's all one big movie um and i felt the same way about kind of tenant by the time i got to the end of tenant i was like just so tired that i'm just like Okay, can we just, can we split this in two? Can I have like a matinee in the middle of it? I mean, he's, yeah, I think he is a classic movie director because all his movies should have like a 20 minute matinee in the middle. So you can just kind of catch your breath and then move on to the second part. Um, oh like, God, see the end, I will agree. Like I love Tenet. It was my favorite movie of mm -hmm. last year. God, I'm so predictable. But um, 
the thing about it is tenant doesn't make you know like, i have watched it like four or five times and i still can't fully understand everything i'm watching and at this point i just kind of go along for the ride like when i get to that final battle scene with uh well, you know there are still a lot of people out there that have seen tenant or have not seen tenant so i don't want to spoil that mm-hmm. for them but there is a lot going on there and i can't keep up with it and uh the like it's the motto of the movie i've I've heard multiple people say this i credit my friend hayden where uh clements posey says don't try to understand it feel it and that's kind of how i go into tenet and one more thing sorry i feel like i'm cutting you off again Uh, we've been talking about how great of an action director nolan is and um like a a lot of people kind of criticize his direction in batman begins which i can understand because a lot like the chase scenes and stuff like that are great, but the kind of hand-to-hand combat is a little weak. Mm. But I, I dare anyone to watch Tenet and watch that final battle scene and tell me that Nolan cannot direct action because that is one of the most incredible things I have ever seen. Oh, the man can absolutely direct action. And going back to Tenet, watching my partner, who likes logic, who likes things to make sense. He doesn't necessarily feel a movie. He wants to work out the mechanics of it. Him watching Tenet and having everything he loves in a movie and going, that's cool, I love that. Oh, that's a cool idea. What's going on? And then trying to figure out the plot as it was happening was one of the funniest experiences I've had last year. <laughs> um, it broke his brain because he had to get up. He paused the movie, had to get up and go, this movie is not making sense. Everything else, the, the, the science. And I'm like, Dan, that's what I pretty much said. This is not a movie you understand. This is a movie that you just have to watch and go with. You cannot <laughs> break down Tenet while you're watching it. You will go insane. We ended up finishing the movie, but just watching him just like go, wait, you can't drive backwards. No, but they are filming it backwards. It's like, hmm. He was doing that noise a lot. Oh my God. so funny. Yeah, the thing about Tenet is it's a, it's the idea it's the idea is from like a fucking 12th grader like yes. oh man secret agents traveling through time how fucking cool would that be man but it's directed by someone with a phd in physics yes and he's trying to bring as much science and realism to it as possible mm. and I think it's awesome, but it's also it's very laughable at times, I will admit. Oh, it is, but then you get that plane scene when it crashes into the building and you realize, oh, he actually did that. That oh my is God. cool. Much I risked like my the... life to go watch that in a theater and no regrets. <laughs> as long as you were masked up, that, that was the best you can do. <laughs> oh, Nolan not understanding the pandemic. Oh, bless Nolan. Um... Uh, no, yeah, Nolan, uh, I mean, he's one of my favorite directors, but... Um... He's definitely problematic because I feel like we could classify him as a murderer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you might be able to do that. But going back to the action um, in uh, in Dark Knight is some of my favorite stuff I've seen in a movie. Um, that scene where they're transporting um, Harvey Dent, who's just announced himself as Batman, and they're in the underground. Wait, how incredible is that, by oh, the way? Oh my like, god! When he when Bat when uh, Bruce is about to step forward and announce that he's Batman, Harvey just does it. Like that, that still gets me to this day. Like, mm. oh my God, I can't believe that he's like, he believes this much in Batman that he's just, uh, he's just going to do this. Like that's such a powerful moment to me. It really, really is. It, um, and he does it and he goes in and then you just get this amazing, amazing action scene and the way it builds and the way it changes and the way it ends with um, the realization that um, 
uh, Gary Oldman, who's giving such a low-key performance in it. I had to admire him in it, um, especially in a movie where everyone else is trying to do something else. He's just like very low-key. Um, for Gary Oldman, that must have taken a lot. Um, uh, apparently, Nolan wanted him, I believe, to play uh, Jonathan Crane, Scarecrow, in Batman Begins. And he was tired of giving, getting like over the top roles yeah. because that's what he was being typecast as. He wanted to try something different, so he told Nolan, "I want to play Gordon," and it was a great decision because he is—he's fantastic, isn't uh, Gordon? I mean, Gary Oldman's just a great actor. No he's matter a great what. actor. Yeah, but we shouldn't be surprised, but we're not used to seeing him play things that low key. Oh no, I was this close to choosing Dracula as one of my trailers for '92 because. I think there's a weird kind of thing where you see everyone giving these amazing performances, but they're all huge. I think in Dracula, it's taken to the nth degree because you're Anthony Hopkins looking at Gary Oldman going, oh, you think you can go big? We're having a big off right now. Um, <laughs> um, and I love Dracula. Like, love That's that movie. That's a great movie. That is, um, yeah. Shout yeah. out Hayden Gilbert. That's his favorite movie. Uh, he's definitely listening to this. Got you yeah. in mind, Hayden. Hey, definitely have you in mind. That is an amazing movie. Um, and it's, yeah, so I think this is kind of thing, but to have um, Gary Oldman suddenly just like pair everything back and you can tell he's doing it on purpose. Um, and he's the linchpin for all th three movies. I love every single performance he gives in all three movies. Um, and so you have this kind of sequence and in between, you know, the reveal that he's not dead and um, Aaron Eckhart going, oh, uh, Harvey Dent, I'm Batman. That sequence when they're going through the tunnel is perfect. I mean, you have the Joker on a truck with what's his name screaming, is that a bazooka? Um, and just shooting bazookas and fire things and them fly almost flying off the truck. And then you have the friggin' that of course, um, it goes dark and then you hear that perfect piece of music, the, that kind of Batman theme. And then all of a sudden Batmobile shows up and you're like, yes. And then it oh gets god, in, it's amazing! And then that motorbike comes out, and it's just almost standing to your feet kind of moment because, and you haven't even gotten to the truck flipping yet, um, which in itself is extraordinary. But you're on your feet even before that happens because you see that bike, and you just like, oh, it's on! It is the way it's directed, the way it's shot, how clean it is. You know where everything is. It is one of the most pieces of extraordinary of action you will see in a movie. Um, and it's just, this is what I love about the Dark Knight. It's this kind of sequence. And maybe because I love it so much, I get so exhausted because I'm putting all my energy into this. Um, but that scene when, yeah, that truck actually flips and then you just have the Joker randomly shooting, um, going, kill me, kill me, hit me, hit me to Batman who's on the bike. I mean, it is kind of perfect. It's, it's a perfect cinema moment in just that one moment. 100 percent. yeah this was actually the first blu-ray i ever got i upgraded the blu-ray in christmas of 08 and yeah. this was the first one i got and i watched that bonus feature where they show how they executed the truck flip i must have watched that over and over again because mm. i just i was so obsessed with that it's it's kind of one of those things where everything clicked you can see nolan had it in his head he knew exactly what to do it's mostly practical. I'd probably say um, for some of the wheel stuff, it's a little bit CGI, but it looks real. Um, the sound effect sounds like a transformer, which I love with that bike. The zit zit zit. Um, going back to his <laughs> yes. Bay love, um, it's it's I don't know. That is kind of the moment that makes it. This in the bank heist. The bank heist at the beginning is just chef's kiss perfect. Um, again, Even though they somehow don't notice William Fickner sitting in the manager's office when they run in. <laughs> 
I just realized that today. Like, they just, like, he's able to pull out a gun. They are doing crowd control for everyone in the bank. Yeah. The manager in the office, they they don't seem to pay any attention to him. No, and him, William Fickner, walking out with that shotgun is magic. It is because, one, it's, again, one of those actors you would not think would be in a prestige movie like this. Um, And he should be because William Fickner's great. Hell yeah. Um, I feel like that's another little nod to Heat since William Fickner was also in Heat. He was, yes. Um, And that whole scene is pure Heat. And he walks out with that shotgun, cocking it, and you're like, yes, this movie is on. And then you realize you get the great introduction to the Joker. And it's, I don't know, it's those little moments that I absolutely love about this movie. It's just perfect. Everything's just clean. It moves together. um, And then kind of the story can kind of kick off. And those things tell their own little contained story. Like I think um, Dark Knight is all about these contained little stories. Even going back to the fairy, it's its own little thing. It doesn't you could take it out of the movie and it wouldn't necessarily change it, but you could put it back in and then it does give it something else. Even though I don't love it as much as you, I do appreciate what structure this movie is because it's the Joker. It's meant to be, he is he is the ultimate agent of chaos. He is kind of the one that you don't, he's going to keep things going as long as he can. Absolutely. And I feel like that also ties into, uh, it's kind of a, phrase I heard a lot during the promotion of the movie when it was coming out and also on the Blu-ray but the the thing that Nolan often said is uh kind of like Heat which was a big inspiration it's a movie about a city Mm. like it's about Gotham City and how a madman is kind of manipulating it kind of like uh a movie that this phrase is never attributed to but it's one of my favorites so I want to give it credit Die Hard with a Vengeance. Oh, yes. That's a movie where a madman is manipulating an entire city just so he can pull off a robbery. Yes. And in this, a madman is manipulating an entire city just because it's too much fun. Some just people want to see the world burn. Um, one of my favorite images is when he does have the, all the cash piled up with poor um, Han on the top of it. Um <laughs> and how do you make how do you make money like that stable (laughs) stable enough to stack that high and sit on there's a lot of things the joker does in this movie and my favorite line is when he's talking to um harvey dan after he's been he's been burnt and um he's like it's your fault you know well because he did he killed rachel and then he just looks with this brilliant facial expression do I look like I have a plan? And all I can do is like, <laughs> yes, you're in, where did you get one? Where did you get that nurse's uniform on such short notice? Two, have you seen the rest of the movie? You have plans on top of plans on top of plans. You don't care if they work or not, but you are a very organized man. Yes, I think you are a man with a plan. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but the, the delivery of that is just genius. <laughs> I absolutely love it and i love that he's able to get this is where we're getting into i don't even know why i'm saying this because this is something that's probably covered a million times but he is able to manipulate harvey dent when he's at his lowest and it's just such oh god it's he's like he really has thought everything through to a t he really it has is, it always amazes me just how well planned out everything uh, the joker has set up is it really is, and it's kind of this weird juxtaposition where you realize Harvey Dent hasn't got things planned out, and I think maybe that's why, I feel like I'm going into another movie, because I think you're right, those are saying, oh, you might get a hint of Two-Face, and no, you get Two-Face, um, 
and he's being very, very two-faced and, you know, the flip of the coin, everything like that. I love it. But yeah, let's go ahead and talk about two-faced because we've been talking about it a while, but there are a couple of characters we need to talk about before we uh, move on. So yeah, face is definitely one of them. Yeah. I love, okay. My Batman knowledge comes from the cartoon. I wasn't a big comic book reader as a kid. Um, I loved Neither the was I. movie, but I, and I loved the original movies and I loved that animated series. And in that, I love Two-Face, I love Scarecrow, um, and I love the, those other kind of big, I mean, yes, Mark Hamill as a Joker is great, but Two-Face was kind of the ones I always responded to. And maybe because I have this weird kind of, I think, especially with Batman, you always have a pre notion of what these actors are. Uh, uh, Killian got, uh um scarecrow down um but two-face was kind of weird because yes you build it's harvey dent he sees himself become the villain and he is this kind of very manic out of control he's just full of pain which makes sense for this movie but for some reason that's final i don't know what is about this final act of this movie but i just doesn't reason i get kind of exasperated with it i'm like okay come on come on and i think i don't like the notion of batman kind of giving himself up a little bit it's just i don't know it starts feeling which i know you completely love this movie so i'm not sort of saying anything else just for me i get very exasperated with it but in saying that everything else i would just say everyone loves the dark knight so feel free (laughs) feel free to fucking hate it if you want it's not gonna (laughs) affect me at all i love it when we get alternate opinions on movies Mm. You could be on here saying that it was the worst movie ever made, and I would just appreciate hearing a different opinion on it. I am not going to get upset no matter what you say about The Dark Knight. Um, yeah, okay. Um, that final act, especially when you have Harvey Dent taking um, uh, Gordon's family, it feels, apart from that point, especially on the boat, it does feel like they're keeping things going for the sake of keeping things going. This is, for me, it's a movie that should have ended after some point after the hospital. It doesn't. It keeps going for another 40 minutes, I think. And yeah, it's just kind of weird. I mean, we're now this loving um, Erin Hackard's performance. Now coming back, I think the movie keeps, is trying to keep up an energy level. I just don't think it can sustain. And I think because this movie has six different plot points, including the whole plot point with um, that guy who's figured out, which by the way, I've always thought it funny that no one figures out who Bruce Wayne is. Um, He's figured out that Bruce Wayne is Batman, is trying to blackmail. And it kind of leads into something else, but it's just, it's like, okay, now we have another thing. Okay, and another thing. And I think this movie can get a little bit fatty around the edges because Nolan's just thrown about these 6,000 balls in the air because it is about a city. But I think by the end of it, it's not necessarily about the city anymore. And I love the city stuff. I think it's more about his philosophy. Like, um, oh, what is a hero? Is a hero a symbol? Can you turn that hero, does a hero need to turn into the villain to save everything else? And that isn't the kind of stuff I I, I like as much as I do the beginning stuff when it's more about the city. It's more about how the madman is kind of impacting the city than the end of it, if that makes any kind of sense. No, that makes, uh, it makes perfect sense actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, like that, it kind of makes sense why you might uh, respond a little more strongly to Batman Begins because mm. it seems to be a little more of that and a yes. little less of uh, the uh, things you're complaining about. What I love about that final act, and uh, well, for, I don't think the movie feels long. I just I feel like it. I'm just hooked the whole time. 
And I love it when a movie that I'm really into, especially a summer blockbuster that I've been looking forward to for a long time, gives me a bait and switch and we still have a lot longer to go. And like, cause I'm worried like the movie's almost gonna be over but I'm loving it so much. I just mm. want more. And then pow, I've got more. Yes. But on top of that, it feels like because the Joker is uh, an unstoppable force, like it takes forever. Like this is someone, it's really difficult to catch. And I feel like the movie being as long as it is really illustrates exactly how tough he is to catch. Mm. And even when he's caught, He's still not caught because he's got another agent out there in Two Face. Yes, causing his own kind of chaos. No, he does. He's re- Joker has a really good recruitment method because he can just get people to do at people at their lowest point and who are in pain. He can suddenly convince. Oh, I'm going to operate on you and put a bomb in your stomach. Oh um, my god, that poor Paul Walter Hauser looking guy. Oh, that is so heartbreaking. It's just it's like oh my stomach hurts and they're ignoring him and it's just. Oh, um, and then just Joker's just sitting there going, yes, uh, here we go. Um, yes. I mean, God, the one-liners in this movie are just on point. But yeah, I think by the time I get to the end of the movie, it's kind of changed to what it was, which is the point, because the Joker is meant to be this Asian of chaos. He likes changing things. He doesn't like the status quo. But what I respond to in a Batman movie is I probably respond to Gotham more than anything else. Um, and I think that is not necessarily... What or I mean, Nolan is interested in that to a certain extent because he's made three movies about Gotham. So yes, he is interested in it, but he was also more interested in this idea of anarchy versus fascism, heroism versus villainism. This uh, two sides of the same coin, which yes, it's Harvey Dent. So we're gonna do that. I think you can tell he got stuck on that, and it kind of feels like he kind of t- wanted to stretch that idea out to maybe more than I think was technically there. But at the same time, I still enjoy those performances. Um, and what I like about Dark Knight is that it quickly doesn't, it stops being about Batman. Batman Begins is all about Batman. Dark Knight is more about the Joker. It's more about Harvey Dent. It's more, yeah, it's more about these other characters that surround Batman, which I appreciate. But I just think it stretches it out too much. But that is just me. Um, I can see why people love this movie because I think the highs, you never get higher than you do um, in, in the Dark Knight. I mean, when it hits, it hits big. Since you're such a Batman Begins fan, I do have to ask, how do you feel about the changes from Batman Begins to this? We already talked about the comedy, but like the big one that sticks out to me is how different Gotham feels because it doesn't have that uh, almost gothic elevated train in the middle of this modern city. The Narrows is completely gone, which Mm -hmm. there's a line at the end of Batman Begins where he's like, uh, Gordon just says the Narrows is lost. I'm like, what does what does that mean? Does that mean that it's there's no one there anymore, or is everyone there just crazy? Like, because there's still a giant island, a kind of giant uh, favela, I guess, in the middle of Gotham City, and it's just never addressed in either of the other two movies. Nor is the train. <laughs> no, it's kind of you're right. Actually, I miss it a little bit. Um, I think because I loved those underground kind of spaces. I loved the narrows. I love how gothic it looked. Um, it didn't. It felt like a kind of a made up city, which Gotham is. And um, Dark Knight, I did really appreciate the fact that it really just looked like I think it was Chicago it was mainly filmed in, or was it Boston? Yes, yeah, it Chicago. was uh, Chicago. Yeah, it looks like Chicago, and I kind of like that because it's like oh. Yeah, this could happen a real place. Gotham is now a real city, which I think probably Nolan wanted to begin with. I think if he had his choice on Begins, Gotham wouldn't have looked like Gotham and in, in, in Begins. 
Um, again, it looks like much more like the animated series, which I'm, again, fully for. Like, he can call bats. He's ma- Batman's kind of magic. Here he's oh, not. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's just, I always forget about the fucking calling bats. I like, love I love it. Batman. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I love it too, but every time I think about the other two movies, I'm just like, so that's just something that you never thought to do again? No, it's kind of weird. Like, all the magic has been taken out of it. And I appreciate, I do appreciate that because I do actually love how he shoots the city in both movies, um, especially when you get into Rises when Gotham's just turned into this um, uh, cesspool of um, uh, Scarecrow having mock trials. And oh my, I love that stuff. In, my in friend Rises. referred to that as uh, Nolan's rim shot, his <laughs> just yes. having fucking Jonathan Crane hosting all of these trials in the yes. streets, like just. His mind completely lost. This is just a sentencing. You can either be exiled or die. <laughs> Which is the same thing. Oh, so, poor Burn Gorman. I oh. lo- like he's a bad guy and he deserves it, but I, I, I love that guy. I don't want to oh. see him die, even if he deserves it. Uh, no, it's just it's a cruel way to die. Um, and it's yeah, and so I kind of like that. And the Dark Knight is a very clean movie, even though the whole point of Joker is he's coming up to try and mess it up. It's a very clean movie, and um, I think, yeah, I kind of miss that kind of gothic edges around the corner, and then by the time it really becomes what it's about, I'm like a bit, oh, okay, so we are in this territory, not that territory, but at least Rises gives, gives me Jonathan Crane doing weird stuff in the middle of it that I can kind of go, oh, this is some sort of weird... Um, Terry Gilliam-esque kind of thing that I can kind of um, get my hands on. So yeah, there's nothing, apart from the stuff I love, which I really love in Dark Knight, there's nothing I can necessarily texture I can grab onto because Nolan doesn't, no, he has a lot of texture, but he doesn't, he likes to flatten it out, if that makes sense. It does, I, that does make yeah. sense. Like Nolan's, uh, he's often accused of being kind of a cold and clinical director, which yeah. I disagree with. Oh, I disagree I with that. See- Mm. I see where people come from, like not just in terms of his characters, but in terms of the look. Like he made an entire movie about dreams where like the most the most surreal thing in the dream is just a hallway turning around. It doesn't like really embrace the true weirdness of dreams that someone like say David Lynch does. But Yes. Yeah. That, that, and I that, and that, I can yes. definitely see how that uh there's I guess the word I'm looking for is a lack of imagination, which I disagree with. I mean, well, I, mean, I guess I kind of agree because, like, dreams are fucking weird, and maybe there should be representation for weird dreams in Inception. But at the end of the day, I still just like it's still incredible filmmaking that I I'm just won over no matter what he does or what it's lacking. No, I, yeah, I don't. I think Nolan has never been. I think he can be cold. No, I don't think he is cold because I think he is. He's just a very clean director. And I think people mistake clean for cold. Um, and I think he likes straight lines in his movies. Um, and I think maybe in The Dark Knight, he is trying to blur those lines a little. And I just don't think he can pull it off because I think this is a man that likes very clean lines. He's very imaginative. I think his funny movies are funnier than people give them credit for. Um, I think especially Dark Knight. I mean, when you first introduce to the Joker, he's a hoot. He's making jokes. It's just when you get that video of that poor guy that he's murdering on camera... I think that's the that's when the turn happens. Um, and let's not forget, like one of the great jump scares ever. Not just in a, it, I mean, well, not in a horror movie because mm. it's not a horror movie, but just one of the all-time great jump scares 
is that Batman impersonator's body just banging oh, against the yes. window. Gets me every it's single like, time. Yeah. I want to see this guy. I want to see what he could do with a horror movie because mm. he is able to, like, he's able to build creepy moments into his movies. Like, yeah, those two moments we just talked about are kind of terrifying. They are. And I'd love mm. to see what he could do, like, just going full in on that. Yeah, yeah, that would be amazing because I think, because it really comes out of nowhere and it, that him slamming against the window gets me every single time. Um, so yeah, I think he's trying to, because he's dealing with the Joker, I think he's trying to muddy the waters a little bit and this is something he's not particularly comfortable with. Um, even in something like uh, Tenant, where you're not meant to understand it or Inception, which is kind of meant to be dreamlike, I think he still likes everything clean. Um, and I think the Dark Knight go, attempts to go into areas that aren't clean. And I think that's the third act. And I think that is when, for me, the movie falls a little bit, just because I think he's like trying to, clean up something that should be a lot messier a lot dirtier a lot um screechier then he's able to do it because he just can't because he just wants everything to be well he's a clean director and man is a clean director there's nothing wrong with clean directors um but yeah i just can't i want to get a hold of something really really thing in that last act but nolan is going into a area where he's not used to and he's doing Nolan um but in saying that I still think this is a four-star movie because it's friggin' the dark night these are just kind of things that when I'm watching a movie I respond to something a bit more gothic a bit more heightened well actually dark night is really heightened um yeah I just I prefer the calling of the bats <laughs> absolutely and I can completely appreciate that I mean obvious I love Batman Begins too and I love all the fucking weird things in there that don't necessarily tie into these other movies just because I fell in love with that movie before I saw The Dark Knight, and I kind mm. of internalized a lot of that wacky shit. So even though we moved on to The Dark Knight and we've gone into this almost entirely different world, I still have a soft spot for that kind of weirder stuff. That uh, that oh sorry, sorry you know what? Sorry, go yeah, on. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's all I was gonna say. <laughs> okay, well, because uh, I was gonna go on to another uh, difference between this and Begins. How do you feel about Rachel Dawes and specifically Maggie Gyllenhaal versus Katie Holmes? I think Maggie Gyllenhaal is a better actor just to begin with. I think um, I did have in my notes because um, I don't mind Katie Holmes. I don't. I think she's, me neither. She's fine. Like I don't mind her. She's she does her role really well. I I'm fine with it. I just think when you watch that and then go straight on to what Maggie Gyllenhaal is doing. And she is an actor that is much more aware of how her body works. Like you can tell she's always moving at an angle. So she's always kind of presenting. She's not just hitting her mark. She's actually kind of moving in a way that moves her body and that she's kind of acting because the role is written. There isn't actually much there. Um, but when you actually watch her performance, she's always doing something with her body to make it look like at a specific angle, if that makes sense. So I think she's more noticeable when she's on screen because she's the way she's holding herself. Absolutely. I think there's, she's definitely building it more into the woman in a man's world role that she's playing in this movie. And that oh, kind yes. of building on the power of that. Mm. Uh, yeah. Maggie Gyllenhaal, who I hope showers by the way, after what we've recently learned about her brother. Uh, oh yes. <laughs> uh, she, no, I love her and I love Katie Holmes mm. and like every now and then I kind of like wish we got Katie Holmes in this just because like I love perky little Katie Holmes just like just like fucking 
being the assistant DA. I'm yeah. just describing what her fucking job is. I'm not saying anything specific. But well, that's the what the movie is, describes her as. So <laughs> yeah, I love Katie Holmes, but the key moment in this movie is uh, Rachel and Harvey on the when they're talking to each other as they're about to die. Yeah. And as much as I love Katie Holmes. I don't think she could pull that moment off. I don't think she has quite the dramatic chops to sell that moment the way, like nothing against her. She is a solid actress and I love Mm. watching her, but like Maggie Gyllenhaal pours her heart and her soul into that scene and it is heartbreaking. I feel like it might ring a little more false if Katie Holmes did it. I could be wrong. She could be great, but like for that moment alone, I'm glad that we have Maggie Gyllenhaal here instead of Katie Holmes. Yeah, because I love how you can tell that she is scared, that she doesn't necessarily believe exactly what she's saying. Like she's just trying to keep um, Harvey calm. Like it's going to be okay. They're going to choose you. I don't mind dying. It's going to be fine. And you, But the way she's kind of saying it, she's there's this pitch to her voice where she's like terrified as anyone would be. And she's trying to be the calm one because she knows she has to be. Um, this is the man that she's in love with. This is the man that she's chosen. And um, it's she's just trying to keep him calm in a situation where there is no calm. Um, and yeah, it, it, she's putting everything into it. And you do get those levels of different emotions going through her voice when she's talking to Harvey. And it is a brilliant and heartbreaking moment because you're like, oh, oh no. <laughs> Absolutely. What I noticed today, what I love about watching movies for these podcasts is like this, The Dark Knight is a movie I've seen so many times that I've just kind of internalized it and I don't really have to pay attention when I'm watching it because I know everything. But when I'm watching it for a podcast, I do want to like take note of any little things I might have never noticed over the years. And I never noticed that like it's a very subtle moment in Maggie's acting when she hears uh, Harvey shouting, no, not me, why are you coming for me? Mm. Over the phone. And you just see this tiny little reaction in her face that mm. like, oh my God, uh, they came for him. I am dead now. Yeah. And like that just fucking crushed me on this viewing. It really does because she's that's what she's been saying. She's been trying to calm him. They're going to come for you, but you can kind of secretly hope, oh, maybe they'll come for me. Um, oh, and, and I can I can give you an amusing little anecdote too about yeah. like how stupid I was when I was a kid. I mean, I'm still kind of stupid, but oh man, when I was uh, young, this came out when I was in high school, and I wasn't the most astute movie viewer. Even though I was already watching David Lynch movies, mm-hmm. and I thought that I was an astute movie viewer, I wasn't. So when I first saw The Dark Knight. Um, I assumed that Batman was heading out to save Rachel. And then halfway there just decided to go and save Harvey instead. <laughs> I didn't think, oh no, the Joker purposely gave him the wrong address. Yeah. And then when I put that together in my head, I'm like, oh my God, that is diabolical. Yes. Never did I notice that, wait a minute, why do uh, Gordon and them not show up at the same place as Batman if they were also going to save Dent? <laughs> oh God, I was a stupid kid. Yeah, it's, um, that is such a diabolical thing to do. Um, and it's kind of brilliant on the terms of what Joker's actually planning because he is, he, all he is doing is just making people make these choices that are impossible to make, but he's forcing them into it, which is kind of why I guess the boat is kind of meant to be this nice pathos because you just have them not being able to, they're not doing what the Joker wants. He wants them to turn on, he, he wants them to turn on each other and they don't. 
Um, and it's kind of, it is kind of this nice thing of like, actually, no, Joker, you don't know humanity as well as you think you do. And his face, when he realizes that there's no boom, is quite funny, actually. <laughs> Especially the whole, hey, you can't count on anyone. You gotta do everything yourself. Um, exactly. It. Yeah, absolutely love it. Um, is there anything else you want to point out about this amazing movie before we move on to uh, Stallone? <laughs> Oh, oh, yes. Um, yeah, let me uh, go through my notes here. There are a couple things I want to mention. Uh, I'll tell you another stupid thing about when I first watched it. Um, at the beginning, when they're robbing the bank and they're disabling the alarm, that one guy at first says, huh, that's funny. Wasn't dialing out 911. It was trying to reach a private number. And I thought, holy shit. Is the bank, is the bank alarm calling Batman? <laughs> I'm like, no 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 this is a mob bank they're just calling some like i don't know mob enforcer or something like that it's, it's calling eric roberts right hand man or they're calling like <laughs> yeah the yeah the crooked cops yeah Ramirez and uh, yeah uh, that's another thing i'll tie into the um when the whole town is trying to kill coleman reese yes and uh wayne is trying to find out exactly how many of uh uh, Gordon's men have uh, people in the hospital. Mm. There's only two, Ramirez and Berg. I'm not 100% sure on this, but I'm pretty sure because I heard it mentioned when I was in college mm. and I think I saw it somewhere online. But uh, he gets a text saying, Ramirez Berg. Charles Ramirez Berg is a professor I had in film school. <laughs> and he is a very, very knowledgeable guy. He knows his shit. He's one of my favorite professors I have. Yeah. And I am 99% sure that that was just a tiny little nod to him. Because mm. it's, it's such a specific combination of names. Like Ramirez is a major character in the movie, but um, Berg is just there in the car with uh, Gordon at the yes. end. Like that I character could have been named anything. So the fact that they specifically pick Berg feels like it was purposefully trying to uh, pay a little homage to that guy. It sounds like it. And that sounds like the kind of thing that Nolan would do. He's such a film geek. Um, people forget exactly. that much of a film geek he is. And one thing about being a film geek is loving other film geeks. Um, yeah, I think people would sort of forget how much of a film geek um, that Nolan is and I think you can see it all the way through this movie I mean there are so many nods I think isn't Michael C Hall one of the journalists in this yeah you're thinking Anthony Michael Hall oh, Anthony Michael Hall. I would Sorry, get yeah. those names mixed up too <laughs> I wrote it down in my notes I was just reading that and then there's yeah that's Anthony I Ma wish it was I wish it was Michael C Hall <laughs> from Gamer yes doing that little dance he does um which <laughs> Through me, I was like, "Is he dancing in Gamer?" Um, I mean, no. what else are you gonna do in a movie like Gamer? <laughs> honestly, um, no, Anthony. Um, yeah, it's just like, wait, that he's in this? Jesus Christ! Um, no, yeah, he's he loves movies. He keeps infusing them in his movies. Um, and I think it's. I think when you look at Dark Knight as a whole, it is actually a really strange movie, and maybe one of his strangest because. It does have all these really disparate elements and i don't love every single one of them but that not saying that there's still enough of it that i grab onto because there's as i said there's like six plot lines as you were mentioning before the guy who um the city wants to kill i mean you didn't have to have that in this movie but at the same time because joker does joker really need an excuse to try and blow up the hospital um it's it's um yeah it is just this kind of well thing. i think it's also it's not just an excuse it's joker wants 
he wants the people to do like he wants yeah. to see the city turn on these people yes. and that's why it's kind of escalating like at first he's uh like he's just having people killed and then he wants to have the city kill coleman reese that doesn't work he uh partially because batman keeps interfering but yes. because of that he's uh he's uh he at the uh he's just ready to have like his plan work out he wants to see the city turn on himself and that's why he uh utilizes the people in the fair like okay certainly two ferries full of people one of these people will be willing to blow up an entire boat full of mm. people yeah, yes. And Batman can do absolutely nothing about this because it's just in the middle of the ocean and how is he even going to find this? This is true. Um, though I do love the line when he's finally hanging upside down. I love the shot how Nolan turns the camera around, but he's like, you won't kill me because of some sense of righteousness and I won't kill you because you're too much fun. Um, and I think he does kind of dig into the relationship between the, the, the Joker and the Batman have um because i one run of comics i did read of batman was the owl um the owl council and when joker loses his face i think it's quite a modern one and the whole thing is because joker's getting jealous that batman doesn't need him anymore so um he's kind of trying to get back into batman's good graces by causing all this havoc because he wants batman back in his life essentially because joe i think the whole thing is batman's broken up with him and doesn't want anything to do with him and joker's not having it and you kind of get that sense of relationship in the movie oh that's a total leto move that is a total leto move oh that actually sounds like i, I want to get into reading uh comics more that actually sounds like one i'll have to check out yeah that's the only ones i've read um i was never a big comic Reader. The only one of the things I've ever read is a bit of um, Alan Moore and this kind of weird run. I think it's when they changed over, when DC changed over to the 42 or whatever it was called, 36. I can't remember. Um, Comic a, people, please correct us. Please correct us. Tell me what run that was. Because <laughs> um, I read a little bit of it and I didn't actually mind it. It was kind of when I was listening to a lot of Kevin Smith podcasts at the time. It was a strange time for me. Um, <laughs> well, you'll get plenty of comic knowledge from those. Yes. And I think I was like, yo, I'm going to get into these. And then just realized <laughs> I really like Ellen Moore, but I'm not, this is too much. Do really have to buy these every single time? No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so yeah, please comic fans correct me on what I'm saying because I know I'm saying gibberish. Um, and with that, we will be going in, we're leaving the Dark Knight closes. So can I, can I yep. mention one more thing? Because this is something that I, every time I watch this movie, I remember this. So Gordon's son is played by an actor named Nathan Gamble. Mm. From 2006 to 2008, this kid was put through some shit because he is in uh Babel in 2006 where oh. he's uh one of Blanchett and Pitt's kids who are traveling through the desert uh, trying to cross the border and almost die. He is Thomas Jane's son in The Mist. Oh and we no. All, we, yeah, we all know <laughs> what happened there. And then he is Gordon's son in this where he has a fucking gun to his head at the end of the movie. And after all of that, it's like Jesus Christ, kid. He uh he did a Joe uh, Dante. He did Joe Dante's The Hole a couple of years after, which for anyone, any other kid actors would be a very dark movie. But after these three, that's just like a fucking vacation. That would be. That's actually the lightest out of those movies. It really is. But <laughs> even if you in, even if you exclude that, 
The Dark Knight, where he has a gun pointed at his head, is still the lightest of those three, I feel like. It really is. Um, but yeah, because it's the whole point. The whole thing is like Harvey's having to make the Sophie's choice, as it were. And it's heartbreaking to see this gun just like cling to the kid's head. And he's like, I don't know, maybe it just disturbs me. I'm playing Russian roulette with a coin. And I'm just like going, oh, God, it's, 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 oh, it's yeah. a really dark moment. To think about all the parents that took their kids to see this <laughs> and were just like, oh my God, this is too dark. And then the parents who didn't think this was too dark, imagine their reactions when they took their kids to see Batman v Superman, which oh. opens with Batman freeing a bunch of sex slaves. Yes. And if they didn't think that that was too dark for their kids, then they probably take their kids to watch I don't know. Fuck it. They probably take their kids to watch Dragged Across Concrete. Oh, yeah. I just remember um, I went and saw It Chapter One for the second time. Um, and it was a quiet theater. But I just remember kind of near the front row, there was a um, dad has taken his two kids to see the Evil Clown movie. And I'm just like sitting there going, this is how they're going to handle that first scene. <laughs> oh, my God. They sat I... and watched it eating popcorn. They must have loved it. But I'm just like going, Jesus Christ, because the, the friggin' 1990 thing movie had me running from the friggin' room, and there's these kids sitting there watching um, poor little kid getting his arm bitten off. I'm just like, oh, oh yep. my God. Yep, you kids can obviously like your killer clowns. <laughs> I had a friend yesterday go to see Don't Breathe 2, which yep. is a brutal... I mean, you've seen the first Don't Breathe. Yes, you probably yep. know it. That's already brutal. This is even more brutal than that. Oh, and apparently wow. there was a fucking baby in that movie. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Why would you do that? <laughs> oh, God. That, yeah, that kid is fucked for life now. That is, yeah, that is, um, that's insane. Um, anyway, yeah, anyway. that is all. I, that is, those are all the notes that I have. Uh, so we've been talking about The Dark Knight for, I guess, an hour and a half. Jesus Christ, how the fuck do I go on so long? Oh, this is this is why you make podcast gold. This is all I can say. Um, well, I appreciate that. Um, now we're going into a very different movie, which I didn't actually write as many notes, but... Um, Probably because this is a very surface value movie. Yes, there isn't. There's the philosophy. If we, and... if we talk about this movie as long as we <laughs> talk about The Dark Knight, I'll be genuinely shocked. Me too. But an enjoyable movie all the same. And what I really love about this is it's the difference between a 08 blockbuster and a 1996 blockbuster. This is kind of the, the crux, crux for me. Um, but of course, that is Daylight, directed by the original Fast and Furious director, Rob Cohen. Um, what would your first trailer be for Daylight? Uh, so my first trailer for Daylight, I'm going to go ahead and get him in a little Stallone mood. And I'm going to show them the movie. In, I feel like this daylight was kind of uh, building up to this moment in Stallone's career. Hmm. And uh, that is Copland from 1997, I oh, believe. Oh, nice, yes. by Jimbo Mangold. I heard it was a way of life out here. Thought I'd check it out for myself. Where are we, uh, like the Amish now? It's a place where the sheriff wears the badge, but the cops own the town. My jurisdiction ends at the George Washington Bridge. But half the men I watch live beyond that bridge, where no one's watching. I'm watching. Thank you, the sheriff of Copland. He always dreamed of becoming one of them. I'd like you to meet Sheriff Freddie Heffler. Freddie's a hell of a guy. Well, you should call me. But now, he has uncovered something that could force him to choose between protecting his idols and upholding the law. Bandages and dead, you know it and I know it. 
no, Copland was a surprise because um, as we get into uh, Copland and actually Daylight are my favorite Stallone modes. I think he has a few different, he's a great actor, but he definitely has a few modes of what he's doing. Um, and he's great. He's a uh, Copland's just one of those really solid, just why can't all movies be this good? Line. Oh, God. Yeah. I can't talk too much about it because I haven't seen it in over 10 years. Yeah. But no, that movie really caught me off guard. And yeah, what's interesting is, uh, Stallone's obviously a very ego-driven actor and his ego is kind of determined where he's gone in his career yes. at certain points. And uh, like after the 80s where he's playing Cobra in Tango and Cash and he's like, I gotta be the coolest motherfucker in the room. <laughs> yes. <laughs> after that, just seeing him take this kind of low-key role as a just genuinely good, just like he's playing an EMS guy. He's not even, it's not a really... It's not a showy role. It's not a glamorous role. Uh, but it's a very kind of just low-key heroic role. But he is so good at it. And, like, I'm just happy. Like, if we had to go through... I, I love all of Stallone. Like, Stallone's definitely one of my boys who mm. I'm excited to see in anything. But I definitely dig, like, more kind of noble, heroic Stallone over, uh, over kind of cool, badass Stallone. Although personally, none of them touch like grit, gravel, gravelly, kind or bitter old man Stallone for me. But this would definitely be my second favorite. Um, I'm kind of with you. I like Noble Stallone. I mean, yes, I love Tango and Chash, Cash. I love Cobra, where he's being Hell the biggest yes. baddest in the room. And like, um, if for some reason, uh, Rambo 2, um, or Tr uh, True Blood Part 2, whatever that movie's called. Um, I like him that, but I really love a sincere trying to be the hero um one which is very much copland which is good very much daylight um i prefer that um and yeah you're right he's very ego driven so you can always tell where he is in his career depending on what kind of hero he's playing and it's always been the fascinating thing about about him and copland is this kind of he's gone he's kind of trying to rise he's rising up again a little bit because he had like a moment in the late 80s early 90s where he wasn't on top Rocky Five was just not as great as Point. Um, Stop and my mama will shoot, that kind of thing. And then you can oh kind of see this humble rise again. And um, I would argue that Daylight is in this humble rise part. Um, and it's, yeah, it is just you watching him. And this is when he's actually, I just prefer Sincere. I like Grumpy Old Man, but I love his Sincere acting roles. Um, and yeah, I absolutely agree with that. It's a great trailer. Yeah, I just realized that uh, that whole time I was describing Stallone, I was describing his role in Daylight and not <laughs> Copland, the trailer that I'm supposed to be talking about. But, I mean, it's the same thing, especially in Copland. That is a much more low-key role. Just like quiet, small-town sheriff. Like, it's not a showy role. And he's like, he's someone that doesn't really want to resort to violence or, like, hardcore action. It's very much the antithesis to, like, rambo in rambo 2 yes very very much so um my first trailer i watching daylight i realized that in the 90s one of my favorite genres that i didn't realize was a thing in the 90s until you look back on it um was the 90s disaster movie um oh, i hell yeah there's gonna be some serious loving on that here oh my god and i'm kind of surprised i hadn't seen this because this was absolutely my jam so of course and because I, I went to see all the others. Um, so, of course, I went and saw Volcano from 1997 with Tommy Lee Jones trying to contain a volcano under Los Angeles. 
If a dam breaks and the mayor calls, I don't want you telling her Rourke went fishing. Okay, we don't pull her off the slopes for even a 4.9. Gas explosion in the MacArthur Park area. Rescue crews. Public Works lost seven guys. What's going on? Freak accident on the storm drain. They had a steam pipe and got scalded. Steam did that. Steam doesn't charge tissue like this. Methane? Something else. We got a problem. Number four trend, westbound. Temperature on board reads 20 degrees above normal. That lake was 62 degrees yesterday. Today it's up to 68. That's a sunny day. It takes a geological event to heat a million gallons of water in 12 hours. What is a geological event? Can I ask you something, Lindsay? Yep. Yep. Have you ever accidentally taken a trailer that your guest was going to program before? <laughs> no. Oh, shit. You were going to do... It's fine. I have a I have a backup trailer, so it's all good. But oh, yes, I was gonna do volcano. This um yeah, I this is the first time this has happened on Shock and Awe. Um I think someone has taken my trailer before, but I've never taken a guest. So this is well, kind of the first. Congratulations. I'm happy to be the first time that's happened. Um yeah, um yeah, Volcano, as you know, as you were gonna pick it. It is a awesome trailer. It's a awesome, fun, dumb movie. <laughs> I love I love it. Yeah, I'm a big disaster movies are one of my comfort food subgenres. Mm. Uh I keep coming back to even ones I don't like, like San Andreas. I originally mm. didn't like it, but I just keep coming back to them because I need an itch scratch and I will they will eventually win me over. So yes, it is. Um, I love Volcano. I am really happy that you picked that. No, it is because I was thinking of because I had uh, the options if you want me to pick another option. But it's something about Volcanoes kind of when I think I saw it back in 97. I went, well, that was stupid. I think I like Dante's Peak better. But now looking back, I'm like, oh no, Volcano is where it's at. That's kind of what you have. You have everything in that kind of disaster kind of movie genre. It is... Um, over the top it goes bigger than it should do like i do love the 70s ones but there's something about the 90s ones where it just goes a bit further than it should and that is of course volcano <laughs> absolutely i mean you got a lot of uh, another great thing about disaster movies you just get a lot of great actors just chewing the scenery having fun and that one you get uh there's not a lot of scenery chewing outside of tommy lee jones but you get great supporting players like uh Gabby Hoffman is his mm. daughter. Anne Heche is the love interest seismologist. Don Cheadle is his buddy at the emergency center. And uh, John Carroll Lynch as the like most heroic character in any disaster movie, maybe. I, I am so happy every single time John Carroll Lynch turns up. But after the invitation and Zodiac, I'm also a little scared. Um... Oh, yeah. They, uh, they definitely changed him. And... Ted too as well. Got to give oh, Ted too some yes. love for the anti-John Carroll Lynch representation. It's just like, yeah, he's now the guy you get to turn into a movie um, when um, things are going, when you, when you want to change the mood. Before he was like, oh shit, I love this guy. He's, you know, um, oh, I can't remember, Fargo's wife, husband. and Norm. Norm. And now he's just like, oh God, he's going to murder someone, isn't he? <laughs> But he's so good at it. Like, oh, as much so as we good. love likable John Carroll Lynch, like, creepy John Carroll Lynch is just one of the best things to happen in movies. Oh, like, uh, it really yeah, the is. The Invitation, just, that's just one of the best movies I've ever seen. He terrifies me in that. He terrifies me, and yet is one of the saddest things. You want to give him a hug, but at the same time, you know he'll kill you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. 
Um, okay, so now that I've took, what, okay, what is your backup pick, trailer? All right, <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to go with Volcano because I wanted to get kind of a, not really contained, but contained compared to like a global Roland Emmerich disaster movie. Mm. And Volcano seemed like a good 90s contained disaster movie, but I'm going to go with, um, might be a problem because this is a foreign film and I don't know how the foreign play- trailers play on your, uh, when you sample them on the podcast. Lots of music. <laughs> it's a movie I will give, uh, it's a movie I'll give a little love to, and that is The Wave from 2015, I hope. I didn't research what year it came out, but I believe it was 2015. <laughs> Alt okay där uppe? Det är bara några sensorer så uppför sig lite märkligt. Grundvattnet sank plötsligt. Någon som mistade vi kontakten. Vi snackar om en 80 meter hög bølge här. Inte 10 minuter. I have not seen this one. Yes, The Wave is a Norwegian uh, disaster film directed by Roar Uthaug. <laughs> I don't know if that's how you say his name, but uh, Roar Uthaug, who directed the uh, first Cold Prey movie and yeah. went on to direct the um, the reboot of the Tomb Raider movies. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. And both of those are, uh, especially Cold Prey, they're just really solid genre movies. They're not groundbreaking in any way. Uh, my favorite of his, though, that I've seen would probably be The Wave, which is just this small, contained disaster movie about this... Uh, seismologist i think he is in uh this tiny little mountain town in norway and there's a lot of it's a kind of little vacation town too i think and yeah he thinks that there's gonna be a big flood but no one believes him and then sure enough there's a flood that just uh wipes out this town and uh traps a bunch of people and it's mainly just about this guy trying to get back to the town and rescue his wife and his uh daughter Oh, that it, sounds awesome. I'm renting this right now. It is. Uh, I highly recommend it. There's also a sequel called The Quake, which if you like The Wave, give that one a watch. It's not as good. Uh, it it like just randomly jumps to the end in the middle of the final act, which is kind of <laughs> weird. But it's still a very fun uh, disaster movie. Yeah, no, that The Wave. Looks, it's that, my full recommendation. That looks absolutely um, awesome. I'm definitely going to be watching that one. Um I guess for my um, second trailer, I'm going to keep going 90s action. But I think this is a movie that even though technically isn't really a disaster movie, definitely influenced every single um, action movie that came out in the 90s, even if people didn't really um, expect it at the time, because I think at the time it got called uh, Die Hard on a Bus. But yeah, I'm, I'm showing speed. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Will the mystery guest please sign in? Why are they messing with me? Do they think I'm doing this for fun? (laughs) For L.A. cop Jack Traven. Tell me again, Harry. Why did I take this job? Come on, 30 more years of this, you get a tiny pension and a cheap gold watch. Cool. The game began. Very exciting, Jack. Some close calls, huh? When someone put the city of Los Angeles to the ultimate test. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it blows up. 
What do you do? What do you do? Um, I mean, this movie's awesome. I mean, it's fucking speed for God's sakes. Um, one of the best ever. It's one of the best ever. Um, I mean, it reignited Keanu Reeves' movie for what was the second, third, second time until his third and fourth, fifth um, resurrected time. But um, God damn it, he's an amazing action actor um i mean just the way um dennis hopper ho holds a phone is worth the price of admission um i mean again really great supporting actors um really great action yandabant kicks all the ass in this movie and it's kind of got those elements that you will just see keep going in through the 90s especially in daylight especially the and um, amy brenneman character and sylvester stallone relationship in, in daylight um it's yeah i mean you will never have as much fun as you're watching speed as anything else you watch and i mean it gave i mean we've hit we've seen that uh uh sandra bullock before in movies like demolition man but yes. i think it's safe to say this cemented her status as a star like oh sandra yeah. bullock is a national treasure uh from texas texas represent and uh yeah, that is uh, that is just as important of a contribution as much as reinventing Keanu Reeves and just giving us the most quotable Dennis Hopper dialogue Ugh. and uh, being probably the best thing that Joss Whedon has ever been involved with. Yes. Fuck you, Joss Whedon, you creep, but uh, goddamn, your dialogue in that movie is great. I know, it's really annoying because every single time I go, yes, you're the friggin' creep and just when the stories of even um, with Buck coming out of Buffy back then and then you're just like... Oh, God damn it! I really still like the dialogue with Buffy. Jesus Christ. Um, it's you know, the very irony, frustrating. The, the irony is, like, I said I was, like, a kind of almost toxic Nolan fan back when uh, The Dark Knight Rises came out. And one of the things I did was I would constantly bag on The Avengers, which is a movie I like. You know, I'm not, yeah. like, over the moon of, about it like so many other people are, but it's a good movie, and I don't really have too much of a reason to bag on it. But because I was, like, a diehard Nolan stan, and there were people saying the avengers was like the greatest comic book movie ever back then i was just like constantly like felt the need to jump in like are you kidding me what the fuck is this bullshit what is an avenger i didn't say anything <laughs> like that. i was trying to do a little stand-up routine but the point being i did not take one shot at joss whedon while we were talking about christopher nolan that shows growth in me as a human being especially considering joss whedon kind of deserves to have shit talk about him now he really does um because you sort of start hearing these things and then you really start hearing just what what it was like to work on uh, buffy and angel and just his other movies and it's just like oh god that ugh, i've been in work situations that are toxic and you're just gonna go oh yeah i that that sucks and yeah the guy can write dialogue but that doesn't change that shouldn't make him a a, a revered person like i mean there are t i've seen t-shirts of like joss whedon is my god it's like no 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 he shouldn't i mean you can like even you're a nolan bro but you well do you have a t-shirt that's saying his nolan is your god <laughs> i would i mean but then if he got a yeah if he got canceled i probably wouldn't wear that shirt i mean i have a shirt that says directed by michael bay so i have no shame for the clothing i wear well michael but, yeah, bay is if... very um aware of his assholery and i think he he leans into that in his movie so it's yeah, kind of like it's a does. given <laughs> if these people are ever canceled i would not wear uh clothing with their names on it though i would safely say but yeah obviously if... there are people who still do that for joss whedon you know i said uh speed is my favorite thing whedon's involved in my second favorite thing would probably be his much ado about nothing 
uh, which he didn't write any of the dialogue for. He just stole that all from Shakespeare. So. He did, but he just got a bunch of people who obviously could stand him enough to be in his house. But um, no, oh, I yeah. I generally like that a lot, especially because I'm a fan of Nathan Fillion. So he's oh god, he's amazing. Charm on toast. Um, so yeah, and a lot of those actors I really really like. So um, yeah, I could the just story used to that. be it was like oh Joss Whedon took a vacation after watching the Avengers by making a movie with all his friends, and back then I thought. Well, that's kind of cool, but now that I see how uh, he treats his friends, I'm just like, oh, that's not cool at all. Yeah. I'm like, I hope he paid them. <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening to this podcast on Much Ado About Nothing. Yes. Jesus Christ, I go off on tangents. Uh, and um, with that, we are going to be getting into Daylight, 1996. In the middle of rush hour, 100 feet below the Hudson River, the unthinkable is about to happen. Now, as I said, this is my first viewing. Um, when was your first viewing of Daylight? So uh, my first viewing was in, I can't believe I remember this too well, December of 2006. Mm. It was a great day for me because it was, I think it was the day that Rocky Balboa came out and my friend and I had gone to see an early screening. Mm. Up until this point, I wasn't really a Stallone head. Like he'd always, I'd kind of made jokes about him because I'd kind of, Broad, I was kind of brought up during the down phase of Stallone's career when he was kind of a has-been. Mm -hmm. uh, even with little movies peppered in like Copland, he was still like kind of a punching bag. Like the first movie I ever saw him in was, uh, well, I guess technically Ants, but that's the first movie I ever heard him in. <laughs> saw him in was uh, Spy Kids 3D Game Over. Mm. And uh, that's not real. I mean, now that I love Stallone, I love him in that movie. And I just think he's doing a great job hamming it up. But at the time, I was just like, oh, he's he's fucking terrible. Why do people like this guy? I, yeah, I have a similar relationship to Stallone. I've only become a Stallone head in the last few years, even though I grew up at his height. Um, it was all just seemed a bit too muscle testosterone. And I wasn't necessarily, I, I was too young to appreciate Cobra. The only one I really liked was Tango and Cash. Um, that, and th that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. But everything else, like the Rambos, no, the Rockies, oh, I was like a young girl, like, I don't know, boxing just didn't do it for me. Um, and it's only been in the past few years um, when I've really started digging into older movies and all this kind of thing where I've gone back and been able to appreciate Stallone as a, because he is a really great actor. Um, yes, he will choose projects depending on his ego a lot. And, um, but the rise and fall of Stallone is one of the most fascinating um, actor arcs you can find in a movie because it is, the time we get to daylight, I think he is a little bit more humble. He's a little bit more sincere. Um, 
he's his movies of this period have looked back i think look back with fondness i don't necessarily know uh, yeah this this did make money um and i know cliffhanger was a big deal um but demolition man even though that movie's genius just didn't hit because people were just looking at this and going what the food wars won by taco bell what what is happening um <laughs> what are the three shells i don't i don't get it then you realize it's daniel water that wrote this movie and i'm like ah this is why it is genius um but exactly yeah i think people weren't kind of necessary yeah and so i think you've got this very humble thing of him trying to figure out the landscape of what movies are because they were very different to what they are in the 80s and you see it do it again in this in the present time but he's a bit more clued up in the early to mid 90s he's still really trying to figure out how do i fit in what do i do um okay so they don't like the beefed up superhero of cobra and of rambo okay so but these movies are big how do i fit into this kind of more science fiction disaster movie big epic landscape and i think daylight is a really amazing example of that Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah, that's um, that was yeah, that's basically my relationship with Stallone. So when I came across Daylight, I had been marathoning the Rocky movies leaning up to Rocky Balboa because mm. I'd only ever seen the first one, and I thought they were jokes too, based on what I'd heard. But I thought Rocky Balboa looked awesome. I just mm. thought, I oh, that second trailer where I think they play the Three Six Mafia song. I was oh my god, this actually looks kind of great. I want to catch up on these movies. And watching through those movies and saying this, like, kind of, they kind of uh, mimic the evolution of Stallone as an actor. I was like, oh, absolutely. those are a lot of fun. And by the time I got, then I got to uh, Rocky Balboa and like, that was my real big introduction to old man Stallone, which as I said, is my favorite. And the, I, I fucking loved him in that. That was like, that just opened a whole new that just opened a door to a whole new world for me. And I was on such a Stallone high. I'd also watched uh, First Blood that week. And oh. that was another like door open. Cause yeah. that move, that first, first, that first Rambo is incredible. It's amazing. And you see, uh, yeah, I'm seeing different sides to this guy than what I had known growing up. So when I get to daylight, I am, uh, first off, I love disaster movies. It is one of my comfort subgenres. I don't know. I mean, there's just something I part of the reason I love movies is spectacle and like a big like example of spectacle is just watching things get destroyed on screen. So that's part of it. And the other part is I just love watching people fight to survive. They're kind of like little adventure movies where these people have to overcome incredible odds and not everyone's going to make it. But no matter how many millions of people have died, uh, that's not really the case in daylight because it's a relatively small disaster. But mm. like, say you're talking about something like uh, Day After Tomorrow, Roland Emmerich movie. Millions of people die, yet you're still rooting. You're still happy if this group of people you're following survives. And there's just something, something that gets me, something that just gets to me emotionally about that uh, story construct. So daylight already had me on that level, and then you throw in. Uh, of course, this has got it's got a great cast, but led by Stallone, mm. just doing this great work where he's not really playing to his ego. He's a very low key kind of heroic character. He doesn't always have to be right. Uh, even it, like the, the the moment that sticks out to me is when Viggo Mortensen, <laughs> love him by the way. Oh, such a surprise to see him in this. <laughs> when he's trying to escape and he's being cocky, like. Uh, sir with all due respect i think i can get out of here and i'm just gonna keep climbing and stallone's eventually like okay it's fine 
don't worry about it and he just leaves mm. and it's like he's there's nothing really badass about this character like there's no cobra or rambo-esque nature to him he's just a blue collar working stiff who just happens to uh end up being the hero at the end of the day it really is um he's the one who kind of stands because i think everyone by the beginning because you're right this is a very small scale disaster movie except for the people who are in those tunnels um it's everything to them because their world has completely been shut off and they don't know how they're going to get out and you get the sense quickly that everyone's like well we just need to leave them to their own fate because it's no one no one understands the engineering of this tunnel which was a running joke for me throughout this movie but that's something else entirely but yeah you get Stallone who's like oh no I'll go in he's low-key um you don't actually see him for the first 10 minutes which I thought was interesting because usually he's the thing that you see first in most of his movies because he is such an ego-based um actor that you know every movie you're usually the he's the, usually the first person you see and the fact that you meet everyone else and then you meet him in the taxi it was actually kind of like oh I wasn't expecting that moment and it kind of shows you off the bat that he's the low-key guy he is the lower class guy he's just the guy who's just trying to get through the day which he is in daylight absolutely yeah I love the way you pointed that out how uh, he's the last one we meet whereas after like something like tango and cash where he has to be the first person that we meet yes and we have to meet him in the most ridiculous way possible <laughs> where he has to like just be the coolest motherfucker on the face of the planet just shooting at this uh truck that's driving toward him and he Full of cocaine to because <laughs> he's Ray Tango and he's the baddest motherfucker ever no yeah it's definitely a step in the opposite direction for Stallone and it's kind of impressive and you uh you bring that up is another th reason I love disaster movies mm -hmm. I love like getting to know the characters and like spending time with them before the disaster because there's this kind of uh suspenseful undercurrent of when's the disaster gonna happen yes. and what's it gonna be that's actually one thing i like less about daylight than other disaster movies like we don't really get that much time before the disaster it kind of happens within the first 10 minutes whereas in like a roland emmerich film we'll probably get like 20 to 30 minutes with the characters before the shit starts hitting the fan yes and you're, but, no, you're right that you don't get much time all you really get to know is um amy brenneman um, a little bit more than anyone else. You don't even get to know Stallone that well. I mean, you literally see him in the cab turning around going, hey, I'm Sylvester Stallone. Um, exactly. And then they go into the tunnel. It's kind of, it, it put me off a little bit kilter because you're right, you have a very specific image or your idea of how a Stallone movie is going to open. It's going to be him. He's going to be not saving someone on a cliff. He's going to be basically telling you in Tango and Cash that he's more um heroic than Rambo which if that is like the most Sylvester Stallone thing to do I don't know what oh, it is oh Jesus how do I always forget about that line <laughs> it's just like oh yeah it's just, um Rambo's a pussy I'm like of course <laughs> of course it's just <laughs> it's just that is um one way you're just using your iconic character to make your other character look uh Stallone I love you but oh my god um and in this movie he's a taxi driver he's low status you find out that he made a huge mistake he used to be a um rescue i don't know the exact term for his his um, position but he used to be doing a lot of high stakes rescues he made a mistake people died and now he's driving a cab so he's kind of at his most in terms of his character he's at a very humble point and you kind of get to know him through his actions um actually quite one thing i do like about daylight is that yes you don't get to know the characters before everything hits the fan but you get to know the sort of the characters when they're at their lowest 
point. Um, and it sort of is more telling about those specific characters than it is if you met them. It would have been a nice juxtaposition to see them on their daily routine and then seeing them at their worst. But you kind of get to know them when the chips are down. Yeah, no, the character work is still uh, pretty solid, even when uh, when we get to when we don't get to know them until the chips are down. I do. Uh, that is an interesting way to look at it. And what uh, I love about it is, um, I mean, there are some like kind of dickhead characters, but you're nor normally there's like a huge asshole in the disaster movies who's working against everyone and is like kind of jeopardizing their lives. Like they don't, we don't really get anyone like this. We get people who are kind of conf conflicting with Stallone, but eventually they see eye to eye to him. And it feels like a kind of tribute to the survival instinct. Yeah, the only character I can see who would be like that would have been the um, Viggo Mortensen character, but then he just disappears because he goes off and does his own thing. <laughs> um, it's not like he's like, come with me, climb up, and I will, um, I'm working against your interest. It's because he's obviously on television, he's a survival guy, and then he disappears pretty quickly. Um, but it's sort of, that would have been that character, but they just kind of kill him off, or you assume they kill him off, Um pretty quick, quickly in the in the movie so oh god what if there was a post-credit scene where we just see his like <laughs> arm burst out and he climbs out and he's like i made it but he climbs out right as the tunnel's being flooded so he just dies again yeah <laughs> yeah pretty much oh my god the ending when they fall back into the water and you just have amy brenneman screaming is so painful because it's just like that real moment of like you assholes help me <laughs> and they're like oh god what? so <laughs> Funny thing, I had completely, so when I think back on this movie, I always remember him and Amy Brenneman in the, by themselves in the tunnel. And I, so the way I remembered it was that they were the only ones that survived. Well, I remember them surviving along with uh, Danielle Harris. Yeah. I do not remember the part where uh, the rest of them were on that stairway and they were actually able to make it out. So it's actually a happier movie than I remember, especially since the dog survives, even though how the fuck does the dog survive when it's like separated from them while swimming underwater? I don't know how, but I'm so happy that the dog survived. I was never happier because as soon as I saw the dog, I was like, oh no, please. I don't need a dog dying underground in a disaster movie. That's not why I'm here. And then yeah, the dog disappears because it's swimming underwater. And um, and you're like, oh, God, okay, the dog's died. And then he comes back, and then um, still, I'm like, damn right, Stallone, you go back for that dog. I don't care if you fall in the water and die, you get that dog up. And he does, and they pull the dog out. And I'm just like, going, yay, the dog lived. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was so happy the dog lived, especially after finding out that uh, that was their son's dog and he died, so it was like their last remnant of him. And I'm like... Oh my God, that's so tragic. It is. Why, and yeah. why do disaster movies involve me as emotionally as they do? It really weird, but they absolutely do. Even in something dopey like um, Independence Day, there's some sort of um, emotional remnants you feel toward those characters because you want them to survive. Um, and except for Andy, uh, Randy Quaid's character when he's just like, I'm back. It's just the weird. Anyway, I'm not going to get into Independence yeah. Day. Um, <laughs> but it's you do feel these for these characters because you do see them in, this is literally people in peril and you want them to be, you want them to survive. And I think the movie does make an interesting choice where it doesn't necessarily pick off people one by one, but when someone does die, you feel it. I mean, this is not a m movie where 
people just kind of you all hate them they're all angry and you're just like a slasher movie where you kind of all oh, these people are gonna die you're like no these people are scared and they kind of want to know that they're in control which is why they keep fighting with with stallone and it's um it's so it's so when they finally start working together it's really great but when say um stan shaw's death well not even death they just kind of leave him it's really heartbreaking it's just you really feel it in your gut i'm like oh that poor man that is the worst way to go <laughs> oh god yeah just being paralyzed and just knowing that you're about to drown and there's yeah. nothing you can do about it it is horrifying and he's like maybe outside of stallone the most heroic one in the movie he really is and they sort of set him up that he has a girlfriend he's falling in love it's his life is going pretty great and then that happens to him and you're just like and her face when she realizes he's not coming out of the tunnel is oh it's it, it hit me more than i was expecting well, that's because a movie it's directed by rob cohen <laughs> oh yeah but let's just quickly get it out of the way because i know uh, your listeners are probably saying this uh Rob Cohen is a scumbag. We won't yes. go into it, but uh, Rob Cohen, uh, if you want to find out more, just look him up. Look up his Wikipedia page. Uh, he has, uh, he's been canceled, rightfully so, because he's a creep. That one kind of, uh, that was a little disappointing. I heard an interview once with him on uh, the movie Crypt, mm. and he actually sounded kind of cool. He sounded, he, he's like an old Hollywood guy where he just, he had stories to tell. Even oh. though he definitely came off as like a old man who just wanted to be young again, but yeah, knowing everything we know about him, uh, yeah, he is a fucking creep, and we just had to get that out of the way because um, we're gonna we, we kind of have to talk about Rob Cohen when we're talking about this movie, but we can get back to uh, Grace's reaction uh, to Stan, uh, George's death because it's juxtaposed with the joy of these other people actually making it out and surviving. Mm. And it's really, it's a beautiful, it's like a beautiful and also heartbreaking moment how like around all the, like this moment that should be joyful, all these people's lives are saved, but the the person that she most wanted to be saved doesn't emerge and it's just heartbreaking. And she'll never get to explain to him why she's doing a fake Jamaican accent. No, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Oh man, like it's um, a it is a good that, that by the way that's the other person I was talking about who went on to be in Dragged Across Concrete Vanessa uh, Bell Calloway and uh, love yeah I love anyone who goes on to be in uh, Dragged Across Concrete except Mel Gibson I just love him as an actor yeah and uh, I, 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 I think you just, just have to again speaking of scumbags uh, I think you just have <laughs> to you have to sort of acknowledge that yes he has a very good thing on presence on screen. Um, but it's, he's not necessarily a man you oh, want yeah. to be in the same room the with. Term, the term would be problematic fave. Mel Gibson yes. is 100% a problematic fave. I will watch him in anything, but I will always feel ashamed for enjoying him. Yes. Because um, my first sort of, um, yeah, you just you just enjoy him on screen, but you just realize I never want to be in the same room with that man, yeah. ever. Anyway, let's <laughs> anyway. stop losing listeners by talking about Mel Gibson. <laughs> Vanessa Bell Calloway, who plays Grace, Accent aside, it's a really good performance and it's a heartbreaking moment when George doesn't come back with the others. It really is. And that's kind of what I love about this movie is that there is quite a bit of pathos and you do feel character moments when, um, like, as much as when, um, I can't remember her name, but she dies as well. It's the mother of the dog. And she just dies by just resting on her husband because the hypothermia and everything is just getting to her. And her husband goes, oh, I just thought she was just resting. Um, and that, again, is just this really quiet, sad moment that, again, you usually do not 
necessarily get in a movie like this. Um, and yeah, and Stallone's performance is really great. I just love how he's just, I'm going to go try and get you out of here. I don't have all the answers. Um, I don't know if this is going to work because they keep saying, do you know if this will work? And he's like, no idea, but we have to try. Otherwise, I know we're definitely going to die here if we don't try something. So it's kind of this nice, um, nice, um, yeah, hey, maybe we should just try something because we're going to die anyway. So maybe we should just try and do something. And that's this kind of mode of operandi, I guess. And it's kind of nice. As I said, I like humble Stallone. I like it when he's kind of on the back foot and is trying to rise up instead of the, even though I love Rocky three, I love Rocky four, but he is on top of his game and he's wealthy, arrogant, egotistical, um, Stallone. I'm, I'm the greatest in the world, but when you have him realizing, Oh, I might not be the greatest. Oh, Oh, Oh no. So he, you can see him working at it a little bit more. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like this is kind of a key performance in that, at least for me, because it was one of the first ones I saw. And like the one-two punch of this in Rocky Balboa, it was just like, man, this guy's just like the, this guy's just like a dad. This guy's just like the guy you want raising you. This is just a guy you want as your friend or your parent. Like he's not this like creepy Hollywood guy that you're like, oh my God, I don't ever want to be around that guy. No, you kind of do. He looks like a really nice guy. And I love the fact that um, he's friends with James Gunn and James Gunn makes him um, King Shark. Oh my um... God, just one of the... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, Suicide Squad might not be my favorite movie of the year, but King Shark's going to be the best character of the year. Um, yeah, because I was listening to your episode and I uh, still haven't seen the movie yet, I will, but I don't mind comic books being spoiled i mean seriously oh okay i was um, about to say i hope we i hope we didn't ruin it for you oh no i don't know if this is a movie you can ruin um but just kind of the notion that again stallone trying to figure out where he fits into this landscape and he kind of is now okay with being the side player like in creed he's still rocky but he's uh, he's the he's the coach now instead of the actual guy who's going to try and be in the ring and now he's in guardians as one of the ravages and also king shark when he gets what five different lines maybe like hand um sorry this is from the trailer um and he's he's kind of okay of being the legendary guy to the side because everyone knows who he is i don't know he feels more this is watching him in movies now he feels the most comfortable he's ever felt in his own skin watching him on screen at least anyway absolutely and that's why i love him even in like even in bad movies or not, not just bad not bad maybe just mediocre like i will admit i'm not the biggest fan of the creed movies i'm sorry people i know they're like the best but i i just don't find the uh, adonis creed to be that compelling of a mm. character i mean i think the first one's all right but mm. well, I'm, geez, I'm going off on a tangent i'm just gonna say my thoughts on creed the point i'm trying to make is Stallone, it, that might be the best he's ever been in that first Creed. Oh, yeah, he is so And, like, so I good. feel like, yeah, he has definitely aged into being very comfortable in these types of characters. And just few things get me as excited to see a movie as old man Stallone. Like, even his DTV movies, like, I've heard nothing but terrible things. I will happily watch Escape Plan 2 just for Stallone. <laughs> I didn't mind Escape Plan 2. I haven't seen the third one, which I've heard is atrocious. Um, I didn't love the first or the second one, but they're, they're fine. Oh, and... wow. I, I hear the opposite. I usually hear, like, the third <laughs> is better than the second. Oh, I, maybe I need to watch it. Um, yeah, it's fine. And, no, even in his DTV kind of stuff, he feels, again, 
comfortable and that is never something you feel um in his earlier movies he's always got something to prove even in daylight i think he's still trying to prove himself which makes him so fascinating um and stallone has been in some god awful 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 movies um and in those ones um or maybe not so much the last rocky but i didn't like the uh, not not the last rocky um the last rambo i did not enjoy but he's very old man stallone in that and he's very oh absolutely he's very comfortable with what who he is and what he is but when you watch his career even like even in the first if you ever watched death race 2000 you can tell that he's hungry and he is starving in rocky he all he wants to do is that line of saying what if um what is my potential i'm never what is i need potential what is it and that is literally what rocky is um it's like figuring out who you are and what you even meant to do and all this kind of thing and then as you see is yeah i just love the, the tracks of his career because um he's always trying to prove himself even when he's still the height of ego um even in tango and cash he still wants to prove that he's better than um russell uh, kurt russell um and <laughs> it's there's some constantly going, yeah i'm tougher than kurt russell look i'm, I'm tougher than kurt russell and it's like mm, well I, I don't know but i can see that you're trying to prove that you're tougher than than kurt russell um and he's never been an actor who's been felt like he's been comfortable in his own skin he's always trying something else on and i would say he's doing this in in daylight he's still trying to prove himself um and so when you get into like his last part of his career when you just like he's just got this like fuck it um I, i'm gonna be king shark it'll be fun um i'm gonna be the side i'm gonna be the the supporting in in creed and i I'm going to be okay with that. I don't have to keep rewriting, going in and rewriting my scripts to make it set, to make it where I want it to be or trying to prove that I'm still that guy in the first Rocky movie. Um, it's a fascinating career because you got the sense that he really wants you to like him um, more so than Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, any of his sort of contemporaries. He wants you to like him. And I kind of find that a kind of endearing I do too. Absolutely. Like he's, um, like if we had to go through that, if we had to go through that early phase of his career, the like ego driven years to get to this point where with old man Stallone, where he's just finally comfortable, it was completely worth it. And yeah, in every one of these movies, you can just tell that he wants us to like him no matter what he's doing. Oh, absolutely there's kind of this drive of to be accepted and to be liked and this is so much that in daylight especially when his character is literally trying to get these people to trust him um for no other reason that he doesn't have a plan but he has part of a plan um sorry i'll go back to guardians of the galaxy again um but <laughs> it's yeah he just really desperately wants these he wants to help these people um and he knows he's the only person that is not necessarily that can help them but is willing to help them um and yeah so i kind of love the sort of the process of watching these kind of people who don't know each other having to start to work together and also trust one another um and the reasons why you get these kind of people who are um very yeah it feels very kind of a natural process of people trying to be in charge too many cooks in the kitchen everyone giving ideas and then because they're all scared and they know that they have no control over the situation especially the guy who plays daniel harris's dad the reason why he says like i need to be involved in this because i've got my daughter here like i need to know that she's going to be okay no matter what we do and you can kind of understand his logic for being an asshole. 
Yeah, exactly. He's mainly the character I was talking about as someone who's antagonistic to Stallone, but it's never much. It's never out of a uh, selfish need. It's very much out of a that's a paternal need to protect his daughter. So there's no, there really is no like antagonist in this movie outside of maybe the uh, well, the city engineer, I guess. And oh my god, no! I love how whenever you get engineers in a room talking about this movie uh, or talking about the bridge, no one knows what's going on. <laughs> I just like. I don't I like I'm terrible at science I'm terrible so I would never be a great engineer but I would have thought that at least one of the engineers would have sort of understood how this bridge actually works everyone sort of no one necessarily knows what they're talking about in terms of um how to like I would have think that New York Tunnel actually has kind of an artillery to the rest of the city that it might be kind of important but no it's not it's just um yeah, it's just it's just fascinating how every single time there's engineering talk, everyone's like, going, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's always it's a fun little, I guess I want to say dark. It's really the only moment in this movie where you don't feel hopeful or well, not necessarily that. Sorry, I'm like getting lost. And I also have it playing on background. I've noticed that I've been doing that when I record any podcast. Now I'll have the movie we're talking about playing on mute in the background because I'm like, so worried that I'm going to forget to uh, talk about things, but it's this so rarely helps. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I might start doing that as well because I think it's actually a really good way because you can kind of see points flowing up. Like, I'm just now remembering Dan Hedaya is in this movie, which I'm surprised because I love the Hedaya. And even though he doesn't, I mean, well, it's just one of those things where you want, it's the Dan Hedaya being in this movie that gives him prominence more than his character. And he's always given the intense stare with his moustache, and I, I, I enjoy that. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about, even though he probably doesn't. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it's it's kind of rare for Dan Hedaya to play, like, like, a good guy. Like, he's kind of a bureaucratic figure in this, but, like, it doesn't take long for Stallone to talk him onto his side. But normally, Dan Hedaya, even if he's playing a lovable character, he's playing a fucking prick. <laughs> yes. Like, this is 1995. I'm pretty sure this was the same. Wait, was this 95 or 96? 96, but generally same thing applies. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I have been uh, thinking about this all wrong. So one year before, not the same year, one year before, he was in Clueless. Oh, yeah. Where he's the lovable dad who's also just kind of an asshole. <laughs> get out of my seat um and then uh one year later he's the general in alien resurrection where he's not lovable at all he's just an asshole oh my god i love it when did um adam's family that was much more earlier when he was in adam's family uh that would have been yeah the early 90s early 90s but no he's just one of those really solid character actors you get in the mid 90s that he doesn't need much explanation um and he's kind of one of the few actors i know i think any amy brenneman you get by the look of her she's meant to be sort of the stand-in sandra bullock um but she was in heat so um she's actually a very very um i like her a lot um uh, that's one thing i was gonna like i've been uh like the whole point i was gonna make with her is that this was the same year as heat oh shit and... it is <laughs> no 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 well no. it's not because i thought it was 95 turns out it's 96 so heat was the year before yeah but i will say I love Amy Brenneman in this movie. Having said that, I don't think she's, she's not great in this movie. Like she is playing it big. She like, really I think is. She, she might need, she might, she's someone who I think might need a little directing and Michael Mann was able to get a terrific performance out of her in Heat. This really low key, just 
incredible performance where you just love her the moment that she starts talking to De Niro. Mm. And here, like, she's just, everything she does is so, like, broad and caricature. And, like, one of the first things we see her doing is just, like, shouting New York, New York at the top of her lungs. And when she's trying to rescue the uh, people from the bus, she's just, like, she every part of her body is moving in a different direction. It's like she's not getting... Uh, much direction from Rob telling her to kind of uh, tone it down. And it, you know what? It's fine. For this movie, I welcome it because this is a movie that kind of invites over the top performances, but uh, it's it's still funny to watch. It is. She's actually, now you mentioned it, she is the most over the top and in a slightly more different movie than I think the rest because surprisingly, you're right, this is a movie that invites over the top performances, yet you do not get that many over the top performances um yeah like even Vigo who's like playing an over-the-top yeah. character like he still feels very grounded he does which is kind of surprising because she is literally yeah she's screaming she's yelling New York New York at the top of her lungs she's a failed playwright she's kind of doing all this kind of thing but even Stallone who could go big is actually being quite grounded everyone's being very kind of realistic oh we're stuck in this kind of thing um and it does, you're right, it is a movie that you would think, because um, most disaster movies have, uh, especially in the especially in the 90s, have a lot of over-the-top performances. Um, even if you, actually I don't think Armageddon's, no wait, Armageddon is actually a really good example of this. Because you have so many side characters all being a specific caricature. I mean, you have Steve Buscemi, you have... Um, Owen um, Wilson. Ben Affleck, Owen Wilson, I'll always forget he's in that movie. Um, <laughs> you have... Um, I think is Ving Rhames in that movie or is it someone else? No, it's uh, Michael Clark Duncan. Michael Clark Duncan, I'm sorry. Um, you have all these kind of big characters going big. I mean, Bruce Willis is being Bruce Willis in it. And even, um, oh, Billy Bob Thornton is actually going kind of big, but that could be because every single time he's on screen, Michael Bay is just zooming the camera around him in 30, 360 <laughs> degrees. Um, so it just feels like he's bigger. But it's kind of one of those movies that, you go big. Um, but because Cohen isn't the strongest director as well as being an asshole, he's kind of leaving people with their own devices and they're not going big except for Amy Brenneman. Even Stallone, he doesn't necessarily match her energy, which kind of surprises me because he's usually the energetic one in, in, in the space. And he's kind of not, but I kind of prefer, maybe everyone was matching Stallone and Amy Brenneman thought, nope, I'm, I'm gonna move my body in 16 different directions. And Stallone kind of ruled the room in terms of how the energy was going to be, because I know he was always very involved in every movie he made. He would often rewrite scripts, that kind of thing. Um, so it feels kind of like, yeah, everyone's kind of matching what Stallone's doing, except for Amy, who's doing something else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, part of it might be that she's, um, I don't know, like, I don't know exactly when she started. The first thing I ever saw her in was Heat, but, uh, like she was still, I feel like she might have still been trying to get bigger and bigger roles. And so she was still, she was, like you said about Stallone earlier, she was hungry. Yes. And she wanted, like, she just wanted to act and act her heart out. And that's what she's doing in this. And like, I've been making fun of the performance. I love it. I wouldn't want her to change it at all. Like, I just, I, like, like, act to your heart's content, Amy. My tweet last night was yeah. that uh, I, if I could travel back to one period of time, it would be that moment in the 90s where Amy Brenneman was cast in every movie. It really was for about two years. Um, I first saw her on TV. Like, that's kind of where I knew her. So um, 
I think I used to watch Judging Amy for a period of time. Pretty sure that was her. Um, and kind of things like that. And then when I went back and watched Heat, I went, oh, I, this was, yeah, her, probably her at the start of her career when she was really starting to get some traction. She was in a Michael Mann movie, maybe one of the great Michael Mann movies. Um, I need to watch Heat again. But yeah, she's this kind of, she's the one who just wants to act. I think everyone else sees this as a job and maybe Danielle Harris is only still young, so she's still being told what to do. Um, and it's just this kind of, yeah, it's a fascinating movie though. One of my favorite, um, actors in it is, I, can, I should have written down her name. She plays Daniel Harris's mother and you can kind of tell from the get go, she is just over everything. She's like, kind of like the last one to do anything, but she's like, can I just sit here? And when the rats, which is such a great moment when the rats kind of descend out of the water and into the, um, church where they kind of find safety. Um, she's the only one that stays put. She's just like, huh, fuck it, rats. And what else can go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, uh, I went to the Wikipedia name. Her name is uh, Karen Young. Ah, yes, Karen Young. Um, I really yeah, like Yeah, I love that moment. I love that moment, and I generally like her performance because she's kind of, she's low-key, again, low-key. She's kind of snarky because obviously her and her husband have been fighting at the beginning of the movie. Um and yeah, she's kind of the one that kind of accepts the fate of everything else a little bit more than everyone else. And I kind of like there's that figure in there that she's just kind of like, oh, God, whatever. <laughs> well, but she's also like the most emotional of them before that. Like there's that one yes. moment where she's yeah. just having a fucking breakdown. So she goes like from there to just acceptance. Like she travels the uh, spectrum of uh, grief a lot quicker than everyone else or the grief, the stages of grief. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes, you're right. She does actually, because I forgot that she is quite the emotional about um, what do we do? How do we get out? All that kind of thing. And by the end, she's just like, ah, rats. Ah, what are you uh, can, we, can we talk about how it, um, Stallone entering the tunnel is a fucking Mission Impossible movie? Yes! And it's awesome. That's insane. It doesn't quite fit in with the rest of the movie because it, it, you're right, it's so grounded. And then he's like, no, there's only one way I can get in. And it's through this fan, and yeah, it's it's Mission Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> but I I love it. I love this extra, just added kind of ridiculous action scene that's not really disaster focused. It's just more. Uh, it's like an additional hurdle to get into the t like they can't just have him climb through a like climb through a pile of rubble. No, he has to go through the fans that they can only stop for uh, slow down for two and a half minutes. It, oh my god, it's not so even much stop. Fun. But that in, is kind of the spirit of the Mission Impossible movies in a nutshell. It is what yeah, is the most difficult way? <laughs> you can hear Ethan Hunt like narrating this as he's going it. Like the fans can only be stopped for two and a half minutes at a time. Yes. And so we're gonna do this, this, and this. And it, yeah, because Mission Impossible is never about the easiest point. It's what's the most difficult point to get from A to B. And exactly. this is and this is daylight. What is the most difficult point to get to A to B? And at least in daylight you have a collapsed tower and there's water, there's fire, there's electricity, there's a whole bunch of different things sort of getting in your way. Um that feels kind of natural. But yeah, no, the reason why I love Mission Impossible, I'm just like going, you just chose the most difficult way to do something, and I love it. <laughs> exactly yeah i mean that's why it's the best franchise it is and oh j just that last movie i i friggin adored um just i'm best. so 
Uh, so good. So good. Um, I don't and, know why we're saying this like we're the only ones that think it. It's a universally beloved movie. It but... really is. It surprised me because, you know, oh, De Palma made a Mission Impossible movie. Yay. Second, I actually have a soft spot. But, um... I fucking love the second one. <laughs> my least favorite. Um, yeah, but no, they're, they're, it's a really fascinating series. And it's that the last one just been so special. Absolutely. God, yeah. Give us just give us a lifetime of those movies and I'll be happy. Me too. Um, yeah, there's, yeah, you're right. Daylight is much more surface than Dark Knight because it doesn't want to deal with any other philosophy. It is literally a um, can we survive this? And I think what it does, it does well. I think it's yeah, not the perfect movie, but for a movie for 1996 about a collapsing tunnel, I think it is just a really good time and does take you to some yeah i mean i don't know when people die in a disaster movie it usually hurts and all the deaths generally hurt and this you kind of feel them in the gut <laughs> oh yeah because they're i mean again these movies are all about survival yes. and uh usually they are uh, like that's the big through line so yeah when one of them doesn't survive like you you feel it and yeah there are some gnarly yeah there's some gnarly deaths in this movie for a pg-13 like uh when george yeah when george uh falls down and the car just lands on him like i i feel that i like shudder just thinking about that oh just when he's tied to the the raft and they know they can't take him with him and he's like yeah no this is fine you know i've lived my life i found a woman i loved i didn't get to tell her that but you know such is life and then stallone leaves him and all you hear is this <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh no! <laughs> it's it's heartbreaking. It really is, and it's a really great moment. Um, which is why I love the disaster genre movie because you do get all this sort of disparate actors and these kind of different performances, and um, you do get to sort of know these people. And it's kind of sort of fascinating looking at this with the Dark Knight because the Dark Knight, when you get into the late 2000s and where we are now, it's all about the property. It's all about the Batman. It's all about whatever. Um, character you're looking on screen not necessarily the actor it kind of comes second um when you watch something like daylight you're going back to a time when it was like no i would have gone to see this because i liked stallone um that was primary where people went and saw this because it's like oh i get to see the new stallone movie yes and i kind of miss that in movies um i still go see movies because i like actors but i think that generally i feel like i'm increasingly being one of the only people that are going to see it because a Jesse Plemons is in a movie or so that was the first name that popped into my head. That's a good or, name to have pop in your head. Yes. Um, or, uh, yeah, who is for another, for another actor. And it doesn't seem to happen as much. It's usually either the premise or the IP. It's not this kind of thing. Um, even though he's not on the poster, but you're going to see something because Bruce Willis is on the poster. Exactly. Yeah. I miss that too. Like that's, um, like, I, God, when you think back to the 90s, yeah, the actors were the driving forces behind so many of these things. I mean, every now and then you'd get like a movie, a comic book movie or a movie where the name itself was the driving force. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they 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 were able to take, I, don't, I mean, I don't want to say they were able to take more risks because there weren't a lot of risks taken in the 90s oh, in no. making movies, but it feels a lot riskier when you look at what we get now where every other blockbuster is just a sequel or a comic book movie and it's a very safe bet and they don't like 
it's the same story. It's kind of just the same uh, story idea over and over again, but you don't like disaster movies aren't geez. I'm sorry. I'm I've been talking so long. I feel like I'm losing my ability to make sense <laughs> here, but disaster movies are not the most original ideas. They're pretty much the same template over and over. And yet when we get one, it feels original because it's so different from just the usual stuff that we're getting nowadays. This is very true. And even if you go back to the 70s, um, it was, yes, you were in a disaster movie like Towering Inferno or The Poseidon Adventure, but you went because of that cast because they usually got everyone. Um, and I'm still oh, the person- God. 70s disaster movies are also just the best. They're just also this is the best. I nearly, I should have picked maybe Poseidon Adventure as a, as a trailer, but yeah, I want to see Gene Hackman take on a flipped boat, or I want to see um, Paul Newman um, in a burning building. That was kind of the, the drive. And yeah, I think we've slowly gotten to the point where it's the concept, like Jurassic Park, it wasn't about the actors, it was about the dinosaurs. Independence Day was about the aliens or the sh things blowing up and not necessarily about the actors, even though you could argue that has multiple movie star performances in it. Um, and it's, yeah, it's kind of this weird of kind of how we're tracked and how blockbusters have actually changed over the years because they've always been sort of the dominant force um you could argue going back to the 50s and 60s with james bond um they've been the dominant force of what people been wanting to see because you're right they want the thing with movies it's about spectacle and both these movies you get a shit ton of spectacle absolutely yeah that's that is why that is the main reason why i go to the movies especially on the big screen is i want spectacle and i feel like we don't get that as much anymore and that's why i cherish and that's why i cherish christopher nolan and that's why i don't want to say cherish but if i get a disaster movie nowadays i'll still i'll probably enjoy it like fucking skyscraper i didn't really care for that when i saw it in theaters but i have like forced myself to enjoy that movie just because like the tiny bit of spectacle it delivers it does no, no there's not as much spectacle but i do enjoy nev campbell punching someone in the face but the mechanics of getting them into that building is insane um it's ridiculous <laughs> it's like can't they just be a, a building on fire seriously guys come on um anything else we want to say about daylight well let me uh, go through my notes here um so according to wikipedia rob cohen originally wanted nicholas cage to play the stallone character and I gotta say, I love Nicolas Cage, and I uh, loved him in the '90s when he was in his action phase. And this would have, uh, this would have been before The Rock, so this could have like launched his action career. Yeah, because it was definitely. Oh yeah, because it was. Definitely well, I don't know if it would have. It might not have launched an action career because no. this wasn't like a big hit, but it would have uh, given us an interesting performance. But I gotta say, like I love Stallone so much in this. I think this is definitely an instance where I would pick Stallone over Cage because I feel like Cage might be doing a little bit of his weird Cageisms, and maybe it's just because I have seen Daylight a few times and I love the Stallone performance we have that uh I don't want to picture it like with these quirks added that Cage would have having said that if this movie did have Nicolas Cage it probably would have still been great yeah i think you put either i think they would have been very different movies but i think um they would have been uh, they still would have been really watchable because i like really like Nicolas cage and i really like action cage um but you're right i think stallone brings us actually no because Nicolas cage can do sincere and i think because he is actually surprisingly sincere in the rock 
um, a movie that you would not expect that sincerity to come across. So I think they would have been both great, but I think that we do get this kind of still, uh, sincere Stallone performance in 96. I think it's something that people, we should treasure. Because I think um, he's often, he was told so often um, by the movies that did well, don't be sincere, be Stallone, be Rambo, uh, be um, Tango, um, be Cobra, don't be um, this other thing. And because Copland, I don't think did that well at the time either. Um, so to get these kind of... Uh, sincere kind of uh movies from stallone i think is something yeah is i love as i said i love sincere stallone so i said so the fact that i got a sincere stallone in this movie that didn't promise a sincere stallone um was just a happy surprise yeah i mean that's always happy whenever you get that which thankfully seems to be the case more often than not these days even in something like escape plan where he's still kind of trying to play it a little cool there's still this uh, sincerity to him that i absolutely love yeah, you're right. And uh, escape, escape plan, it's, yeah, they're, they're they what they are, but you do get more sincere, you do get a little bit sincere Stallone in it. He's more comfortable. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to Stallone, what more do you want? I'm like, nothing. I just want you to be you and I want you to be happy on screen. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm also going to say apparently uh, Vigo was cast because uh, Cohen saw him in Crimson Tide and like, Fuck yeah, that's all I'm gonna say to that. Fuck yeah, because Crimson Tide is the best and oh, and it someone is. getting cast in a movie because they were seen in Crimson Tide, like that's just that's just awesome. That is, because yeah, he's I forgot yeah, again, because that movie is such about the Hackman and the Denzel bit. Uh well the Washington. Um, but he's amazing in that movie because that is an amazing movie I oh mean, yeah he's like the third outside of denzel and hackman he's like the third most important character like the climax kind of hinges on him it really does i need i need to watch um uh, crimson tide again because damn that's a good movie <laughs> oh it's amazing love it so much yes um and with that our double we've done our double feature and it has been truly epic um before we go please has it been away. swift though <laughs> I'm going to say it, if it, even though it was long, it felt swift. <laughs> okay, then that's all we can aspire to. <laughs> Much like a Nolan movie. <laughs> um, before we go, please plug anything away of any good work or anything you're doing at the moment or just where to find you. I mean, you can find me on Twitter at the shape 14 That's at capital T-H-E underscore capital S-H-A-P-E 14. You can find me in Letterboxd, just at my name, Mark Warner, W-A-N-N-E-R. Uh, been on a couple podcasts, uh, just did a film feast on The Suicide Squad, just did a, an inside the sequel on Transformers Dark of the Moon. So looking forward to that one. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh that was fun. God bless, Chris. Oh, the fact and that he I, let uh, you come on with Transformers, I, I'd love it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I gave him a list of uh, numerous sequels I wanted to talk about, and that's the one he chose. Oh, and wow. He, I, don't, I don't think he was happy about that, but you got to live <laughs> with the choices you make in this world. Exactly. And um, also, uh, my friend Hayden and I are going to be on an episode of Film Feast soon, talking oh. about a, uh, going to be, let's say, a double feature of disaster movies, and uh, it's going to be uh, pretty cool. Excellent. I'm looking forward to all of that. Um, well, thank you for listening to Shock and, Shock and Awe. Um, if you want to find us, it is well, on any app or Shock and Awe 1 on Instagram and Twitter. And you can just find me at Reading Geek on Twitter. Um, thank you very much for listening. This has been an immense ple pleasure as usual. I love talking movies with you. 
I no, I love talking movies with you too. I mean, been just two of the highlights of my year, just getting to come on and talk movies with you, Ed. I'll come back on anytime you want me. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, that is definitely because you you've given me a whole bunch of doubles, and there's definitely one that I keep coming back to. So that is a definite going to have to happen at some stage. I'm curious as to which one that is. <laughs> Um, and with that, we will end the show, but we will be next back next week with another double feature. All right. Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye.